I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Carrie Nelson. And we love to watch. Tell me more, tell me more, did you get the paper trail? Tell me more, tell me more, like does he have a pack? <laughs> hey, Peter. That was just for Carrie. Uh, exclusively. <laughs> Carrie's still not back yet. I'm um, so happy. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, uh, we'll just get right into it. We have so much to talk about today. Where we love to watch, we're movie podcast. Pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And this month, we are doing a theme that as, as we've, we've done more and more of it, Peter has opened up more and more about how much he was skeptical about this month. How much he didn't actively didn't want to do it, was angry at me for even suggesting it, uh, thought about quitting the podcast uh, over it, uh, but now he agrees is a rousing success. Uh, and that is, did we dock up? Did we dock up? Did we dock up? Which is, uh, dock is kind of like supposed to mean fuck uh, in that particular uh, usage, uh, but it's about activism documentaries from the 2000s that no one's watched in forever and but made a pretty huge both uh, cultural and mainstream uh, and critical impact when they came out. Uh, so we've done Super Size Me, which we did not like at all. Uh, we didn't like the movie. We didn't like the person that made it. Uh, and then we did Religious, which... Uh, I don't know how what that edit looked like, but uh, we it was three and a half hours about how much we didn't like the movie and how much oh we goodness. really didn't like the person that made it. Uh, I don't know if we've ever done such a personal takedown of someone. Even when we were, even when we had Kirk Cameron, uh, uh, multiple episodes on Kirk Cameron, we were making a clown out of him as opposed to a genuine like enemy out of him the way we've made out of Bill Maher. Kirk Cameron feels like a clueless evil that constantly sows chaos and bad stuff, but only because he's such a simple man. Um, Where where Bill Maher feels different, but like as I said at the end of that episode, uh, if you're expecting us to have jokes, nope. (laughs) Just three and a half hours of Peter and myself. Is he above or below Craig Bierko? On the enemies list. Ooh. <laughs> oh, no. See, the Bierks is a different sort of enemy where... I see. He hasn't hurt anyone that we know of. It hasn't been publicized. <laughs> it hasn't been in the trades. But his existence hurts us, which is different <laughs> than Bill Maher, who has legitimately hurt many, many people who could have potentially been okay people. But he's kind of uh, moved him into an area that sucks. Um, Valid. But the Bierks is not. We have other enemy. Oh, oh, Dean Kane. Dean Kane. Oh, is, right. Is he's up there too? Uh, I proposed another enemy, but that's not for until a May episode. So we'll talk about that later. Yeah, um, I see. I see. Bierko is sort of a. Um, you know the two wolves wrestling inside you, uh, kind of situation. Like we maybe even a yin and yang. Like there's this supposed to be this diametric opposites, and we must oppose one another uh, for the balance to exist. Uh, but uh, Dean Kane is uh, an outsider. He's a he's a filth. Uh, Bill Maher is an outsider. He's a, he's he's he must be banished to the desert. Uh, I'll I'll throw stones at him if he tries to turn around. Yeah, if you did. If you- 
If you did a fuck Mary kill with Bill Maher, Billy Zane, and Dean Kane, or not Billy Zane, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, Mary and fuck Billy Zane. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Craig, Craig Bierks. <laughs> um, with Craig Bierks, Bill Maher, and uh, Dean Kane, you're going to kill all of them. Uh, and marry and, marry and fuck yourself. Um, but, anyways, uh, yeah, so we're getting to kind of the movie and the person that inspired this month. Uh, I thought three some years ago, we hadn't quite figured out how to do what we were doing for three months. We didn't want to go too outside of genre stuff initially, but I did have this idea that revisiting Fahrenheit 9-11, which was this huge movie for me and my entire like friend group in college, would be interesting. And my posit was that no one had watched the movie in 10 plus years. If not more. <laughs> um, and how interesting that would be to go back to. And I also said that at a time that, like, uh, I was not really interested in Michael Moore as a filmmaker anymore. He hadn't really made a film uh, since I did, like, Capitalism in 2009. So this is, like, three, four years ago. I think he makes uh, Where to Invade Next, which is the only Michael Moore movie I still haven't seen. And it kind of got middling reviews. And even just the idea of it just felt... Like he made a documentary, Canadian Bacon, ten, fifteen years too late, and I just and and everything he was saying in the news was frustrating and annoying. And I'm like, I want to go back and talk about Fahrenheit 9/11, and let's let's laugh at how dumb we were for liking Michael Moore. Um, that was three years ago, and then this month finally kind of came together with this idea of moving it into uh, these kind of huge pop culture docs that came out that don't really happen all that much anymore. It didn't happen before. Hasn't really happened as much after. This was this trend, not just of, of these docs as we've talked about, but uh, stuff like, you know, Wing Migration and March of the Penguins could be like huge box office successes. Uh, and, uh, and so we decided. Uh, so we, we Carrie was one of the, was the first person we approached about this. She we mentioned it last week. She works in documentaries, um, has a very strong connection to Michael Moore. We're gonna hear about soon. But as we were talking about like what to do, we're like, yeah. But then Roger and me was impactful, and Bowling for Columbine was impactful, and I kind of want to see the new ones. And I kind of had a take that I, I secretly think maybe capitalism is his best movie. And so it kind of like started small got way too big and then kind of stayed at a medium size. So we felt like it made sense because the reason why everyone was excited about Fahrenheit 9-11, the reason why Michael Moore went from like Roger and me, like if you were kind of hip, you might have watched Adventures in a TV Nation or The Awful Truth or had seen Roger and me. Uh, but, but Bowling for Columbine kind of took him into this new level of fame and notoriety he became uh, a hero of the the left uh which he kind of already was but more a mainstream uh, hero of the left and became a, a consistent enemy of uh republicans uh and fox news and those sort of things too so the reason why fahrenheit 9-11 had is still the number one documentary from box office breaks of it all time, making $150 million is because of it's a stepping stone for bowling for Columbine. And, and a lot of us fell in love with him and got to know who he was based on our age for bowling for Columbine. So it made sense to do both of those. Uh, and then I also just to see where he was at. I, I think I'm the only one that ended up watching Fahrenheit 11, nine. Um, 
Carrie or Peter, did you guys end up watching? It's not what we were covering. Just curious. For no, I did I watched, not. I, I watched the trailer, and uh, after watching uh, the two movies pretty close together, I was like, two things. One, um, I don't think I I can handle that right now. Um, <laughs> I, I I I was uh, somewhat. Uh, I, I was somewhat already hopeless after watching those the Fahrenheit 9-11 and Bowling for Columbine back to back, despite both of the movies being uh, very old. Um, and uh, the thought of just adding on more hopelessness to that it was was not appealing. And then also, I had a similar thing uh, not to step on. Kara, did you watch 11-9? No, I didn't. Um so another thing that you mentioned earlier, like when Fahrenheit 11.9 came out, it wasn't that appealing uh, to you. Uh, it wasn't appealing to me either, even though at that time I was like, I was I was uh, shoring up my bubble pretty well. Um, it was more the fact that uh, I saw not, uh, there's kind of two reasons I think more kind of went out of political relevancy. Um, but he'll never be completely irrelevant. That's that's probably not going to happen for decades, um, if at all. Uh, and one is his own self-imposed sort of uh, willingness to say kind of stupid off-the-cuff remarks um, in interviews. Um, that make everyone that, upset? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> a little bit similar to Bill Maher, but not in the same way, like... He was the only one touting a sort of like full reinvention of capitalism or even the overthrow of capitalism uh, at a certain time. So I think now it kind of emboldened him to think that anything that comes out of his mouth is gold. Uh, And two, um, and this is a good thing for him uh, in a sense, is that his techniques kind of became standardized. Yeah, the, the language of like activism documentaries. And the approach to the approach to how narration works in those documentaries, the willingness to do deep dives uh, into FOIA requests and doing deep dives into going and in, in, in meeting with families and sitting with them and like making these sort of professional documentaries that had been flattened out in a way like, yes, there were no, there were uh, not as many in theaters, but we had tons of shows like using his techniques. We had tons of freaking yeah. YouTube channels using his techniques. So like at the time it wasn't that appealing because I was like, well, what what does he still have to say in a world that has picked up his baton and uh, set it through the um, set it through the multiplicator and handed that baton out to a million uh, a million YouTubers and cable news hosts and such. Yeah, but to some degree that was happening at the time of the earlier films too because as i was watching both of these i forgot like how much they remind me of the daily show yeah um and i also feel like uh he kind of stepped back from his own technique like one thing you notice in uh, roger and me and then bowling for columbine is him being like active in everything and then for fahrenheit 9 11 uh, sicko and capitalism he really takes a step back where he has a narration but isn't as present doing his kind of uh, Michael Moore stick that he did in in all of his earlier stuff. And then he has like certain segments where he comes in and does like kind of his way that he always did to kind of underline points. Like so mm-hmm. for 9-9-11, that's the draft your kids where in Bowling for Columbine or like the awful truth or Adventures in a TV Nation or Roger and Me, that was like the whole movie was that. Yeah. So Fahrenheit 9-11 is, is, yeah, definitely more of a step back. It's more sober. And I feel like 
Uh, just off the cuff theory. My off the cuff theory is if he did that with the the, the following movies, which I haven't seen Capitalism in a decade or whenever it came out. Um, uh, my theory on that is because I think he caught on to the fact that he was kind of annoying even to his own base at times. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think he was like, I still have something to say, but I need to. Ex- it, this election is so important. I can't make this movie about me. I need to make it about. Um, I need to make it about the issues. I needs to be sober. It needs to be undeniable. Yeah. It needs to be. It needs to be something that you can't uh, just uh, you know wave off and say, "Oh, it's just Michael Moore being Michael Moore." Um, well, I think I think yeah, also he's much more delicate with with his latter movies, and I think a lot of that has to do with the public reaction to him. I I think part of that too is just because he just became a lot more famous. He had a much lower profile for earlier movies that he was able to just kind of walk around and do those interviews with random people where I think, yeah, he had to take a step back and he kind of continued that like Fahrenheit 11.9's uh, the same thing. But anyways, really quickly. So I'll talk a little bit about Fahrenheit 11.9 at the end, just five minutes on where, where, what his filmmaking looks like in his most recent uh, documentary. And, and Fahrenheit 11.9 is a really good example of actually a movie that's a sequel to all of his movies. Like, he's not talking any new points, but yeah, I mean, everything that he talks about, uh, gun violence, uh, the, the plight of Flint, Michigan, uh, the corruption in politics, capital, like, how, all that stuff is still, whether you go back to Mike, uh, Roger and me, or more recent stuff like capitalism, is still a major thing going on so it it does kind of provide a almost an update to all of those documentaries uh while being an official sequel to fahrenheit 11 but anyways here's what we're gonna do we are going to introduce carrie uh we're going to talk about what our first why we kind of became michael moore fans what that uh what our first uh experience with him was we're going to talk about Bowling for Columbine, and we're going to talk about Fahrenheit 9-11, and we'll try to keep this under eight hours. So first, <laughs> Carrie, we'll start with you. Introduce yourself to, to our audience. Um, and also, yeah, let's, we'll get right into it right after that. When did you first uh, start becoming a, a fan or interested or see uh, Michael Moore's work? Oh man! All right, yeah. This will be this. Th- 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 my introduction is like seamlessly exactly into that. So perfect. Hi, I'm Carrie. Um, I uh, am an archival researcher working in uh, documentary film and television. I'm currently working on a project that uh, was actually I had forgotten how much of it was kind of included in uh, Bullying for Columbine, but I'm working on a Cold War project currently that gets into a lot of the coups that are in the What a Wonderful World montage. (laughs) So um, that was timely. Um, So I was interested in film as long as I can remember. Uh, I, I was reading Steven Spielberg biographies as a kid i wanted to be a director from as early as i knew that you know people had jobs um and it was probably around the time that i was in high school i knew about documentaries i had worked on a couple of my own documentary projects but i hadn't watched a whole lot of them Mm -hmm. and i met a friend when i was 16 who was really into documentary and who was really into Michael Moore. 
and he lent me his VHS of um, Roger and me and the big one. This is like 2002, 2003. Um, so Bowling for Columbine had been out. Bowling for Columbine. No, Bowling for Columbine came out like in this in this moment. In 2000. OK, too. Yeah. So so he so I was I was watching his tapes of uh, of Roger and me and the big one. And we were watching The Awful Truth together. And then right around the same time, Bowling for Columbine comes out in theaters and I go to see it in theaters. It's, you know, unlike anything I've seen. And there is something about his activism and there's something about his appeal to young people that totally hooked me. I mean, I think I will get into this more later, but I think that there is a reason why like teenagers and young people uh, are drawn to him in a way that people our age may not be as much, um, which may be a liability for him in certain ways. But point being, it's like 16. It was a huge deal. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I was, I was into it. And by the time, so Fahrenheit 11 came, Fahrenheit 911 came out, uh, I think the summer before I started college, what did it come out in the summer? Am I remembering that right? Two, yeah. 2004. 2004. Yeah. Yeah. So it was around the time I graduated high school and I don't know if it's that I had started to watch more documentaries. I was at that point getting ready to call it, getting ready to go to college to study documentary. Um, and I knew that that was my passion at that point. And I s- remember seeing Fahrenheit 9-11 in theaters and it didn't have the same effect at all. And I had started to feel pretty disillusioned with him already. And I remember... Around that time, but more after, especially as I was getting into college and starting to watch more docs and like learning the craft of like what makes an artful documentary, I was just starting to feel kind of betrayed by him and the fact that he uses kind of a lot of cheap tricks in those early movies. Um, I was trying to find a good fact check of a lot of his movies and I really couldn't find it. I know that there used to be some readily available um, and I was having trouble finding them in the lead up to this, but you know, there's always been some debate about how much his films actually are fact checked, how much of it is based on, you know, actual truth versus the emotional truth of what he's trying to get across in a given moment. And the fact that he, may kind of play a little fast and loose with the facts in an effort to main, to to convey a particular type of emotion or emotional truth or you know political activist ideal um so i walked into this uh this rewatch very skeptical and very nervous and very like emotionally defensive and i was definitely feeling defensive watching some of it thinking like you meant the world to me when I was first really understanding this art form and even though these rewatches landed a lot differently than I was expecting it's still not the same and I have this like a 
appreciation for him mixed with this bitterness of like how he how he just kind of distorts things in a way that I don't I still don't feel great about. And the fact that there are so many political filmmakers out there that don't have the same recognition that he does and are never going to get the same releases that he does and won't get nominated for the Oscars in the way that he does. Like, it just feels there's something about it that will always feel kind of off to me. Um, That said, uh, both of the movies landed differently for me than I was expecting. So that was exciting. And I'm not saying entirely positive, but like I'm excited that I wasn't prepared for what was coming. Um, and they do they both read a lot differently to me today than they did when they were first released. So, yeah, that's my that, that's my soapbox. No, that's I mean, we're, we're going to be as anyone who listened last <laughs> week, we only operate on a soapbox. And I don't think it's going to be better <laughs> next week. Carrie, when we talk exclusively about uh, global warming. So, uh, <laughs> oh, like, it's fine. We can call it Soapbox Month. Um, yeah, so Michael Moore, for me, actually represents something bigger than just, uh, um, I guess, uh, the fact that I, I liked the movie. Um, and I realize, as I'm saying, that sounds dismissive to what you said, because that's not how I meant it all, Carrie. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> so I hope that's not how it's taken. Uh, no. But, like, it, like, you know... Michael Moore, I said this in maybe on this show, definitely to a lot of people. Like, so when I saw Bowling for Columbine, I was not political at all, which of course is a form of being political when you ignore it. Um, but uh, in that, I was raised uh, in a very uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, very conservative town. Um, I thought politics. I was one of those people who probably heard somewhere the. Um, you know, they're all uh, the best thing you can do is not vote because they're all terrible. And that was kind of I'd, I'd never uh, I turned 18 in 2001. So I, I missed the 2000 election. Um, uh, can I jump in? Can I jump in really quickly? Just a sure. factoid. Uh, someone who worked in politics, uh, the uh, not voting doesn't send a message to anyone. No, I don't. Um, un- under no 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 I, I I know you know that uh, under voting however does send a message so if you really don't want to participate in the process go to the voting booth log a few you know innocuous measures at the bottom and then hand in a blank ballot other than that that freaks the fuck out of politicians <laughs> not going in at all doesn't do anything <laughs> no well I guess I didn't even think like. Um... So to say that, like, I was sending a message by not – or, like, the concept of, like, I literally didn't care. Like, I didn't think politics affected me. I didn't – and that obviously comes from a, a place of a privilege. But, like, my parents weren't interested in politics at all. Um, the only time I remember my dad being – I mean, my dad had all these, like, campaign pictures and posters of people in our basement. Uh, little did I know later, uh, you know, like – the, you know, Jimmy Carter, because my dad was like uh, one of the co-directors of his California office for one of his elections or some early. Like, it's kind of crazy. And then I remember my dad being very passionate about Jesse Jackson in 1988 um, to the point that uh, we did a kindergarten vote. Um like you voted who our, who our class was voting for. And I, I'd never heard of George Bush or Dukakis, which was the two check marks the class had. And I was the only person in kindergarten who wrote Jesse Jackson in. 
because that was the only person I knew my dad was supporting Jesse Jackson, went to rallies and stuff like that. So, again, a weird thing of where my parents went politically. But at some point, my dad, I think, got disillusioned in politics and a lot of those sort of things. I think he was – I mean, they met in the Peace Corps. He was a super kind of lefty. He got disillusioned and then got re by – insane conservative like government is bad stuff which i think we could have a whole conversation about all of these like vietnam uh baby boomer people who like were super liberal and lefty for their time that became like all government is bad like right of fox news viewer type people like somewhere that that happened to a lot of people and that was my dad specifically so i just just like because of that my dad was so disillusioned in politics by the time I was aware of what was going on, um, I just had no interest. And, um, and like, I had some, I had some more liberal social views that a lot of people in Bismarck, uh, uh, especially when it came to like, uh, LGBTQ people. And, you know, I had a few closeted gay friends in high school that I was friends with enough that they told me and understood what they were facing in, in North Dakota. And so, like, I had some more li – but in general, like, I guess I probably wouldn't have even connected that with politics. Anyways, I'm rambling a little. Um, but I generally thought that, like, Republicans were good. Democrats were bad. I knew everyone hated Bill Clinton. I – I – believed that Gore had tried to kind of steal the election after Bush had won fair and square. I wasn't passionate or cared. That was just like, if you had asked me on the street, that's what I, what I would have said had happened. And in general, uh, I thought that America, like I came from uh, our public education system when it came to history and thought America was generally a good guy. <laughs> like <laughs> America, good. Other countries, not so good. I wasn't nationalist or too patriot. Patriot, like I wasn't wearing an American flag lapel, but America good. So I saw Bowling for Columbine, and not only like even though I never I shot I've shot a gun once in my life, wasn't a big fan of it. Um, Columbine happened when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, all that stuff, like I I just went and saw it because I was into movies and Roger Ebert praised it, and it was showing at Fargo where I went to college had one uh, independent cinema that they would show like that's where I saw Mulholland Drive and I would go try to go see movies there. So I saw it there and I literally was just kind of both blown away. I don't even know if I'd ever seen like a documentary that wasn't um, like a nature PBS type documentary. Uh, I was trying to rack my brain if I had it. Maybe I had, but definitely not one that like resonated me like, oh, this is what a documentary can be like. And then the parts of that stayed with me was um, – not like I mean the whole movie stayed with me, but the parts that like really kind of got to me was like when they do that uh what what a wonderful world montage and it's all these lists of like all these American interventionists in these countries that like caused all of these this death that just was uh not something I never had ever even heard of before you know and sure I'm 19 like you could go well how did you not know that before but I mean. It's definitely not something they teach in your general, like, history class unless you have a really good teacher, I imagine, that, like, you know, uh, that, like, there's all these genocides and coups and, you know, and so there's that stuff. It kind of ends with 9-11, which is obviously pressing. Um, and there's a couple other points in the movie that kind of get political like that, too. And I was I, and I was so into it that I went and I got Michael Moore's book that had come out the year before, which is called Stupid White Men. Came out in 2011 and read the book. And the book is like, has a lot of stuff about how corrupt the Bush campaign was. Like, it, it kind of does almost a pre Fahrenheit 9 11 about 
like who George Bush is, who Dick Cheney is, who all these Ashcroft people are, what like all these things. And again, it was the first time that I was ever like, holy shit, like, like, really? <laughs> like all these people, like, do people know about this type stuff? And so I started like reading more and more. And again, that kind of, so that like, I don't need to get into the whole history of that, but that really was this movie was where I went from not caring and whatever else on that track. And it took me on a different track in my life to where I am both like politically and everything else. Um, now, and again, I don't know if I would have gotten there some other way. A lot of idiot 18, 19-year-olds don't care about politics and um, find their way into hopefully some uh, politics that make the world a better place. But uh, yeah, this really – this was the impetus for me. So, so, so – and so I showed everyone Bowling for Columbine. And so I – in 2004, I had a house with three friends. Uh, we had built a bar in the basement and we ended up get, getting like 30 people before a party at our house to go to opening night on a Friday of Fahrenheit 9-11. Took up uh, like a couple rows at the Fargo Theater. It was sold out. And uh, yeah, just – you know, I just like – it just was such a huge component that, yeah, when I started to, um, you know, start reading stuff about like, oh, maybe he was like stretching the facts or just outright lying in movies, it bothered me because I felt like he was someone who I had aligned so closely with and also in some way birthed me politically that, it, you know, you get a little bit defensive. And the last thing I wanted to be doing was like espousing Michael Moore. If he was a, he was a liar, especially because I was getting so angry at other liars who were just going on TV and lying, you know, the out Fox and that kind of stuff. So I remember I rented the movie, uh, fair and hype nine 11, which was a takedown of Fahrenheit nine 11 supposed. And I really was, I remember thinking like, this is like 2004 still. And I remember being like, okay, I need to, like, I at the very least, I want there to be integrity in what I say. So I don't need to continue to align myself. I can align to the politics in general. I don't need to align to Mike Moore. And I remember watching the movie and, like, being like, there's really, like, he's debating the conclusions Michael Moore's coming to. But he's not actually debating any of the facts of the movie. And I, and then I remember reading at the time uh, a big blog about all the stuff in Fahrenheit 9-11. And yeah, 90% of it was like, we disagree that this was wrong. He's not letting the other side speak. This is open to interpretation. And I remember thinking like, yeah, I don't think that this is the same thing as lying. I think this is someone who disagrees with the assessment and even the other stuff like um the going into the bank and getting the gun and stuff like that like yeah it's a like he is just trying to prove it have an opening in a couple minutes. I don't feel like there's a fundamental difference between whether most people had to get the gun in the mail from the bank who's a licensed firearm dealer or uh, walk out when the bank has said before and after the movie that, yeah, we have guns in the safe, which was kind of his point. So I think even those things feel like, again, narrative short circuits that still fundamentally tell a truth. So in this movie, it, before we recorded this, I went back and tried to find as many of those I could find as well. And I mostly still found the same thing. 95% of it is like a disagreement with conclusions, disagreement with approach, uh, feeling that something was left out that would have also just given a different perspective as opposed to outright 
fabrications or anything like that. So I kind of walked away from revisiting these thinking I was going to laugh at myself and how much I, uh, how much I ended up, uh, like being so evangelical about these movies and watching them and stuff like that. I, I probably hadn't seen either of them in 15 years and instead kind of walked away again, seeing it as a, a time capsule of the era as opposed to outright activism while recognizing that both he's a, he's a very good filmmaker. And I also think that here's, I mean, I could be wrong. I also feel like I, and maybe this is that kind of like, okay, let me hear everyone's take. I kind of feel like I maybe gave him too much shit as a filmmaker for a few years and was more skeptical in other things, at least from a documentary standpoint I saw, because I kind of bought into all the people who had a true agenda to make sure that his points were diluted. In some ways, like, there's a lot of valid... Um, there's a lot of valid, very valid criticisms of Hillary Clinton, but I also feel like um, there's a lot of people, including my, myself at certain times, were just affected by the fact that the Rush Limbaugh's and the mainstream media and stuff like that just fucking hated her and treated her like garbage for 30 years. That, like, I think that also was somewhat, like, you just you just end up going, okay, well, if everyone's saying this all the time, it eventually wears you, on you a little bit. And I kind of feel like I did that a little bit with Michael Moore. I actually, I came away from this thinking that even though I still have issues with Michael Moore as a person and he can be very annoying and frustrating and yes, if, don't put him on an MSNBC type show because he's going to say something that's going to make my eyes roll and sometimes say some truly damaging stuff, which we may get into. But uh, yeah, I I kind of was way more impressed uh, than I expected to be going back to these movies. So, Peter, that was extremely long-winded for me, but uh, it's why I was, it's kind of why I was very interested in doing this and then kind of then this leading to the month as a whole. So, I apologize for the long-windedness. Peter, what, what's your history with these movies? I realized when I was watching Bowling for Columbine that I have never seen a Michael Moore movie. Wow, damn, okay. From beginning to end, I have never seen one. I thought I had. That and legitimately sort of shocks me. Why don't you don't tell me anything? Is this just a thing of age? I would have been too young. I would have yeah. been like 10. And I wouldn't have seen Fahrenheit 9-11 in theaters by the time. I also would have been whatever. I was been 13 12, for the right? 2004 yeah. election. So like at the time I was at most politically uh politically neutral uh though such a thing as aaron said doesn't exist um you're either enforcing the status quo or challenging it i thought i had seen these movies before and it turns out that like the media narrative around michael moore and combined with his interviews because he's annoying in uh on msnbc talk panels um had made me think like i heard what he has to say and also every single similar to supersize me kind of every single plot beat of bowling for columbine had been discussed uh, and digested among fil film culture to the point that, like, I had concocted a memory of myself watching it. And what happened was I started watching it with a friend in eighth grade. We quickly realized it was not uh, a... <laughs> it was a bit out of our, our league, let's say. Um, the movie is not... Um, is not a, a supposed to be talking to 13 year olds telling them to not shoot up their school. It's supposed to be talking to the adults that actually have control and power and saying, what the fuck are we doing with our country? Um, 
And it would have been way too political for me if I had got, actually made it to the end anyway. So uh, I, I essentially had decided from interviews and from the public perception that Michael Moore was an annoying, talentless asshole for, for many years. Um, and then I found, I saw these for the show and I was like, holy shit, I've never actually like sat down, watched this thing beginning to end. Um, and... I was truly shocked at how good both of them were. Uh, Bowling for Columbine, I think, is a slightly tighter, stronger film. Um, I, I would say it has higher highs and somewhat lower lows. I really hate the cartoon section in the middle. But uh, but both of them have a uh, insane political relevancy that I think could be... It could be effective today, right? Like, just because they were made in a certain context... Uh, doesn't mean that America has fixed pretty much any of their issues, right? Like at the end of the movie, there's a sort of hopeful moment when just the movie's production itself is able to pull back some gun laws or sorry, pull back some guns, uh, uh, you know, some gun policies from major uh, corporations, uh, notably Kmart in this movie. Uh, and eventually it hurt Walmart and then Walmart backpedaled on the backpedaling front pedaled. Yeah, I mean, some of it's a little bit like how Dick's Sporting Goods, anytime there's a shooting, stop selling guns for three months, only so for the next one they can announce they're not selling guns again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get the you get the sense that that's not really a big moneymaker for them anyways, so... When I when I was watching it, the, just it, it, both of them, I've used this term before. Uh, both the movies were unfortunately relevant. I really wanted to watch it and be like, man... It's really interesting how we had oil shortages in the 70s. Like, that's really interesting. Luckily, we don't have to worry about that now. We just pay a million dollars for our oil and it's fine. Um, <laughs> in this case, uh, I was like, I was like, oh, none of these problems have been solved. And also, I don't get the sense that anybody but young people today have even absorbed the lessons of American imperialism abroad. So can I ask you a question that's that's. Honestly, fascinating. I had no idea that you hadn't seen these movies. I thought I um, had. But you said at the beginning that it's been 10 years since you've seen Capitalism. So, And you also mentioned that you haven't seen any Michael Moore movie. So have you not seen like Sicko, Capitalism, Roger and Me, any of those? That's the thing is from beginning to end, I've probably seen like half of it on Showtime or HBO or whatever my parents had when I was in high school or like... Shit, Peter, since we're in wow. quarantine, I want to do a follow-up episode where we do Roger and Me and Capitalism, just because... I've been tending to watch Roger and Me. I knew I hadn't seen that one, because that was the one where I was like, I, I wasn't old enough to understand that the specific is actually the universal. Um, and I was like, well, that's just like... Just like one little, dude. Just like one dude, one sad little town in the Midwest. He's like, who cares? Um, and then I got older, and I realized that that's an incredibly shitty way to view the world, and also that's a shitty way to view uh, stories. It's also the template. It's the template of all of his later work because yeah. he continues. One of my big problems with both of these movies is that he kind of frames them as personal stories when they're really not personal stories at all. But the reason why he's doing that is because Roger and me is a personal story and that formula worked so well for him in that movie that he replicated it in like a lot of his subsequent work. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely like he, he but like, I don't, I don't know, Carrie. Like, I mean, I know yeah, it's not fair to talk about a movie that you haven't seen, but like a huge chunk of Fahrenheit 11, nine is about like the water stuff in Flint, Michigan, which even as someone who 
uh, paid pays attention to that and is very aware of it. I didn't realize like he's so good at making even people who are on his side and is frustrated about the issue and maybe have even donated to the issue and done you know whatever little bit of of online activism they could about it. Like he's so good at telling the story in a way that even you are like, oh fuck, it's that bad. Like it's for like oh it's, yeah, and so like that. I think like. I think what does make him still a like different than a Bill Maher or different than some of these other people is like I do think he really has a he might not be uh you know a working class person in uh in uh economically distraught small town in the Midwest but I I truly do believe that like he is still like understands that mindset in a way and uh, and is actively rooting for the people or the type of people that he was like, I, I feel like he's very genuine. And so about, about that specifically. So that's why, like, I don't know. I don't, the I'm parts not, where he, oh, sorry, I'm not saying, no, no, I'm not saying that like, he can't ever make personal work again. And I haven't seen Fahrenheit 11, nine. And I fully believe that him talking about the water crisis in Flint is like, a hundred percent in his wheelhouse he is the person to tell that story that makes sense yeah i'm talking about in i barely remember the big one i remember that one being mostly forgettable it's but, forgettable. <laughs> yeah um but for bowling for columbine and fahrenheit 9-11 and like i stopped watching him after fahrenheit 9-11 i haven't seen any of the others since then so going off of both of those two movies having seen them now recently and also remember remembering them from the time i feel like he inserts himself in ways that are unnecessary and he's doing that because of the formula that worked well or the structure because it wasn't a formula yet the structure that worked well in roger and me because roger and me was so deeply personal to him everything after that had to kind of have the same vibe and the same shtick that leads to him being, you know, in, in inserting himself and making himself a focal point of stories that do not necessarily have to be about him and that I personally believe would be stronger without his insertion. The weakest parts of at least Fahrenheit 9-11 Sicko are when he does the Roger and me Fahrenheit 9-11 comp- things. Like, so in Fahrenheit 9-11, the ice cream truck reading yeah. the Patriot Act is kind of like, okay, yeah, we know. Um, and, or the the congressman asking the congressman to draft, which, again, it's it's tough because it's like, oh, yeah, that is a, it's, a, I think it's a salient point enough to say that only one congressman uh, his kid is serving overseas as opposed to this the stunt just feels eye-rolling and also now everyone knows who michael moore was why it was good on awful truth and his earlier stuff is that people would sometimes come up to him and have that conversation with him and allow him to reveal something interesting which i by fahrenheit 9 11 he wasn't able to do sicko the same thing there's a couple moments where he does like those stunts that i are just generally generally eye-rolling. I do kind of think, for the most part, it works in Bowling for Columbine. Yeah, Bowling for Columbine is where I'm a little bit torn, because on the one hand, there was a shooting in Flint, which doesn't really get revealed until pretty far in, if I'm remembering right. And, like, I kind of wish... 
I mean, this is this is kind of getting too deep into it, but what I'll say quickly is that like my problem with Bowling for Columbine largely comes down to structure. Um, I think it's a little bit of a mess in that regard. And I feel like if the movie had been geared more if it if it had used the shooting in Flint more as the hook rather than Columbine, I might be more forgiving of it. But because it's ostensibly a movie about Columbine, which it's really not at all, but like Columbine is the hook of the movie. Yeah. It felt to me like he's inserting himself in Columbine. Which then comes back with all the stuff at Kmart, and like that just puts all of that stuff. It gives a it gives a really bad taste in my mouth because it's like that's not your story. That's not fair for you to co opt that, even though school violence is something that's personal to you and gun violence is something that's personal to you. Like there are so many issues that are personal to all of us, but that doesn't mean that every example of it, you know, like I. I, I as as a queer person who has you know who have who has many loved ones who have experienced violence and has experienced like mild forms of violence in my life like I would if I made a documentary about the pulse shooting I wouldn't make it about my own stories like that would be yeah. fucked up that's not what you do so it's it rubs me the wrong way that he mm-hmm. does that in Bowling for Columbine I I feel like when he goes back to Flint in Bowling for Columbine. He's adding a universality to it, so uh, it's easy, and it's and it's 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 easy to do, and it has been done since Columbine to write off these shootings as sort of freak accidents, these unavoidable freak accidents, and by making it specific, and I don't know if he's necessarily making it about him so much as he's making it about his. Even in my little town that nobody gives a shit about, we have an output of this systemic problem. This systemic problem is so massive that it even is showing its ugly face in my ugly little town that nobody cares about and I made a movie about. Um, and uh, then in uh, in Fahrenheit 9-11, um, it's, it comes back to – it's not even his story then. He, he purposely keeps himself off camera a lot when he's speaking to um, young, uh, young people who have uh, basically been recruited the shit out of um, as in high school uh, for the military. And in Flint and in his hometown and basically talking about – he uses that as an excuse to basically transition from like uh, – this is one yes this is the this is the war this is what we're doing to everyone over there uh this is also what happens to people once they get there but where the hell are these kids coming from that are feeding the war machine where is the blood that where's the gristle that turns the the war machine coming from hey it's coming from your town too it's coming from my shitty little small town that nobody cares about it's coming from your shitty little small town that nobody cares about it's it's uh by making it specific to his town and also like in Fahrenheit 9-11 like I said like he kind of keeps himself off camera for that part of it by making it about his town um, he's actually making it about your town and he specifically does that in the third act as a way of saying like hey this isn't something you can neatly box up and say like oh well that's other people doing other things those are people these are people that you know in your town and are actively happening and i think a lot of people were shocked by the recruiting efforts in small towns in particular that was something that was like a big hubbub in the news after the movie came out was like can you fucking recruit 17 year olds to sign up when they graduate 
I think yeah. the I agree with what you're saying, and I think the reason why it doesn't entirely work for me in that way is because he was already a celebrity at that point. He is not the everyman at the time that he's making Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11. And he can absolutely make the point of Flint is every small town in America. That's true. But his persona was already so established at that point that it's, for me at least, really hard to separate that out and see it as he's he's using his personal stories and his and his town and you know the, the the stuff from his life that gives him passion as a way of making it more unifying because it feels like it's all coming from his uh persona but it also adds a sense of humility to the to the proceedings even if none of us read it as that because we know he's kind of a blowhard to me the yes. fact that he's like i'm going back to my roots i'm trying to stay connected with who i am and i'm trying to um not just speak to you know the coastal elite so to speak and i don't mean that because i actually believe in that concept uh everyday americans are anywhere in america um I, whether they live near a coast or not um the the uh it's because that's something that's very easy to disregard hollywood filmmakers and uh hollywood liberals in general is like uh oh you're not connected to the real america i think by taking like a humble step back and saying like this is where i came from this is what i'm still connected to this is why this story speaks to me so much uh or this is just an output of the story uh, i i don't know i think the overall effect works really well sure he could have chose a different town from flint but like the fact that he has such a connection there it's like to me flint is as good as any other town oh in, totally in the, in the midwest totally i i agree with that to carrie's point um what i think is interesting so i actually i really like the scene in bowling for columbine where he kind of talks to, he kind of takes Marilyn Manson's advice. Like, I'm just going to, the first time we hear from anyone related to Columbine is he is, doesn't say no narration over it. He's not interviewing them. He just puts a camera on, on the, those two girls and lets them kind of tell, you know, their story for a couple of minutes. But I think that that's effective. I, the, the, the camera part gets a little interesting. So, um, because, when I first saw the movie and subsequent viewings of the movie pre it kind of blowing up and going to Fahrenheit 9-11, um, it felt like Michael Moore, and again, this is all a matter of perspective, I don't feel like Michael Moore was a celebrity outside of uh, the type of circles that would know. It's kind of like, uh, in the same way, like, I don't know if David Lynch is a celebrity even now. Right. Like if you if you are in a group like the Dissolve, you might know who David Lynch is. But if I ask most people I know if they knew who David Lynch was, especially like pre Twin Peaks revival and Twitter and stuff like that, most people might not know who David Lynch is. And I feel like in 2002, most people probably didn't know who Michael Moore was, although there was a chance that you were hyper aware of him because obviously he had two failed TV shows and he had a documentary that was pop popular in the end of the 80s and the reason i'm saying that is that when i first saw bowling from columbine that part with the kmart and why i liked he did that a lot in the awful truth and adventures in a tv nation which was very hard for me to track down uh when i first wanted to see him in between that gap 
it felt like here's a here's a person who is who is uh has a modicum of not necessarily power but at least the means to get a meeting with a Kmart executive right like he has he can he can get through the door he can get a camera some corporate people are going to know who he is he has some means to do that that these two survivors of Columbine don't and in that way he is uh he's going to use that to try to if not affect change to make a to cause some level of stress for maybe some people that deserve a little more stress than they currently have based on their practice um which i get even that gets into kind of an asterisk of feelings right like are you the person that gets to do that? Are you the person that gets to like, well, I'm going to speak for the people that don't have as much of a voice that gets into a lot of very complicated feelings about yeah. uh, whether. So, so I get that, that even, even when done for in theory, like humbly or for done for a good purpose, I totally understand that is a complicated subject with so many different nuanced views. So when I saw that in 2002, though, that's what it felt like to me. It felt like the good version of, hey, I'm going to let these guys come. I'm going to tell their story. I can get them through the door. We're going to they're they're into it. Like, it felt like a good thing. Seeing it in 2020, I, I was a little bit more like, oh, you're Michael Moore. Like, you're kind of dragging these kids along. Are you using them more as props than, like, that part felt... Um, that felt that part felt a little more complicated than it did for me 18 years ago. Although I don't know how much of that is my perception of who Michael Moore is post this movie has to do with it as opposed to where he was before this. So I get it in that in those areas, even if I I I, I don't come down as hard in bowling for Columbine and pre that specifically. On him doing that because it does feel like he really was a little more, well, fuck it. Let's give this a whirl. I I might have a little more chance in getting through the door than you. Where post this, everyone knows who Michael Moore is. Good or bad. Hate him or love him or have complicated feelings about him. Where it feels a little less like, well, kids, you want to go? It like, you know, it, it feels more like it would be exploitative than it does in 2002 so yeah i'm gonna take that that was me way my way of saying i take all sides of it without it's just really it's really hard to parse it's really hard to look at his movies as separate from him and his persona and i feel like that is more often than not a liability for him but i understand also why you know, as you said, like he has to he he's the person that is opening the doors. And yeah, that and I, is that significant too. Yeah, it's why I think, um, and Carrie, I'm not trying to bring up something that I know that uh you you've talked about before and we can edit this out if you don't want to even go here, but I do feel like it's a it's a conversation a lot of people are having, including myself, about like on Twitter right now about like Ronan Farrow or someone like that who has oh a hundred percent who has a personal connection to something who undoubtedly has done some good in um in uh bringing about like some assault uh, you know did a lot of work to get Harvey Weinstein in a way that other people weren't but has also like written a book that I've read that is a compelling book 
but also is very much about his story um trying to get um trying to get get the story told and then you're like well and then it's like well that sucks that's his story but then i go and i go yeah but it's it's his story about how nbc and these other fields of power kept trying to stop him from telling the story which is a story worth telling but does that story overstep the other story that he was trying like so i have so many complicated feelings about it and but i feel like it's a similar thing like here's someone who again not personally touched but Someone in his family, obviously, um, has been a part of the kind of that the powerful men uh, abusing uh, abusing women is is in that is undoubtedly was had had some means to do some of the other things, but now has become the celebrity and recent Twitter retweets make it seem like he he feels like he's taking a little bit too much of a victory lap for so yeah it it feels like the same thing though like I don't. I don't know where I come down some days. Some days, I mean, that guy can go fuck himself. And some days I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And I, I think, just, yeah, I think Rodan Farrow is honestly a perfect example because so two books came out at the same time. Ronan Farrow's book and um, Jody Cantor and Megan Chewy's book came out at the same time. And they were the three journalists. Jody and Megan were working together and Ronan was yep. working on his own. They were the journalists working on the Weinstein stories. And from everything... I haven't read either of the books yet. I would like to at some point, but like, oh boy, waiting a minute before getting <laughs> yeah. into that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, from everything I've read from their Twitter accounts and from articles I've seen of theirs... Megan and Jody do a really good job of like keeping the focus off of themselves. I'm not saying that they don't have personal investment. I'm sure they do have personal investment. They're women in the world. Like they probably have reasons yeah. why this issue is meaningful to them. And I appreciate the fact that they're out there doing the good work. They're shining the light on the people that it needs to be shined on. And they're doing amazing stuff. Ronan Farrow who, as as Aaron alluded to, is someone who I am very loud about thinking as annoying as fuck. I think that he does do really good work, but he the way that he has capitalized on his sister's narrative is something that offends me on such a personal deep yeah. level that like I I wish that he would allow her because she's not shy. She speaks no. up. She's written New York Times op-eds. She's she's there and willing to speak when she wants to. Um, it's one thing. And maybe maybe I don't know. Maybe behind closed doors, she's saying to him, like, I want you to do X, Y, Z. I kind of don't think that's the case because she's pretty loud when she wants to be. But the fact that he is kind of using her story as a career boost for himself, I think is kind of disgusting. So I'd be interested in your take. Again, it is it is still his narrative after reading the book, because there's a lot about his sister chastising him and him taking ownership for a lot of that, and then mm. also leaning on her through some of the process. That was my take, that I okay. actually thought it was pretty honest and forthright about... Um, how he had not supported her and had not really had had kind of jumped on this through this and it, it was interesting again I get that it's still his you know he's still writing this narrative and then the other part that I think complicates it me personally when I can't, this is about Ronan Farrow I get it but like where I think these things get complicated is that 
unlike the the other the other two writers, he has this other story that's worth telling. It's not necessarily worth telling more, but like, holy shit, the Matt Lowers and the Tom Brokaws and like all Andy Lack and all these people at NBC. That's it's insane how hard they fought to stop him from doing this story. Uh, if which in general, I kind of uh, obviously I believe that narrative that all these you know powerful people who had their own uh, history of sexual abuse tried to stop him from reporting it. So it's like, yeah, that shouldn't take the focus away of the first story, but that's definitely something that is part of this whole problem. So I just get very I it, again. I'm not trying to make a judgment one way or the other. I feel different things on different days. Yeah. Um, usually depending on, you know, if I have read something you've written, Carrie, sometimes I'm like, yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> uh, or other people. Cause it, and then, you know, I'll see this. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, so it's, but I do feel like it's it's a more recent example of the same thing. And sometimes how I still feel about Michael Moore. Like, yeah, I, am I glad that he made some congressman feel like an asshole? By, or at least made him run away, made him slightly uncomfortable when they're voting to send people to die in Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah, fuck those guys. But also, like, is he in that moment, like, you know, taking away a narrative from someone else or making it about himself or doing that kind of stuff? I Like, it gets very, it gets for me, I have the same level of, of complicated feelings that, again, I... um. I don't always, like, you know, ask me on the day, and I'll come down on a different side. But I do think watching these movies, um, I was, like, I do think he made a good choice in Fahrenheit 9-11 to take a step back from, I'm going to be on camera for the entire movie, and it's my, me trying to investigate why gun violence, where Fahrenheit 9-11, sicko, capitalism, and Fahrenheit 11-9, for that matter, tell a story, and he inserts himself sometimes very poorly, and occasionally... When he decides to insert himself, it's um, it's uh, it's appropriate. So, yes, uh, I think we've already I think we framed this up enough. We have two whole movies to talk about. I know we've already hit, I'm sure, a few of our notes. Are you guys ready to start talking about bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11? Absolutely. Any chimp can play human for a day uses Posable thumbs to iron his uniform And run for office on election day Fancy himself a real decision maker And deploy more troops than salt shaker uh, we're, Here's what we're going to do. We I don't know how we do recaps of these movies, but we are going to try to segment them a little bit although there may be some crosstalk so we're going to do a, a timer say 30 minutes we're going to move from bowling from columbine to fahrenheit 9-11 and then we'll do 30 minutes there and then we'll just talk about whatever and we'll wrap it up so we don't need to do alternate taglines uh, because i feel like the alternate taglines for both are going to be extremely sad so i'll quickly do bowling for columbine recap uh so essentially it is a story um that is framed in all these different vignettes uh, about uh, why uh, the United States has a bigger problem with uh, gun violence than other countries, uh, other and other countries with uh, either similar gun ownership statistics or gun laws, countries with similar violent video games and all these other things, and kind of what it comes from is after the Columbine massacre. 
that there was all these different labels as to why this happened, uh, which still happens to this day. Uh, right, the the popular shitty thing that uh, Republicans say is it's a mental health issue or something like that. Uh, they're not there to solve that problem um, or talk about it. They're just there to put a blame that has nothing to do with guns. And I think this movie kind of talks about you know there's obviously these these forces in the United States like the NRA, uh, Charlton Heston, who capitalize on and are are um, insufficiently. Uh, 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 remorseful about the effect their hobby has on so many innocent people while profiting off it and then also what is what the fuck is the deal with America's gun culture so that's with interviews with a lot of different things he I, I actually have always felt about this movie that he doesn't come away with a very coherent answer with mm-hmm. the exception of um, and I don't think he claims to, which is why I've always felt a lot of criticism in this movie is kind of lacking, because I always hear, he says it's this. And I'm like, I don't think you've seen the movie. Um, but I do feel like the thing that he feels the strongly is impactful to gun culture is the fact uh, of – is our a kind of uh, profiting off uh, – profiting and causing uh, Americans to live in fear – uh, our neighbors, other races, others in general, like that kind of stuff. So I, I think that's that's a good through point through this while also just pointing out some of the ridiculousness of our gun culture, uh, our gun laws, and just our general capacity to cause harm in the uh, in the world and how uh, that's never taken seriously. So, yeah, it throws a lot of stuff at the wall, and I think it's meant to. I think it's meant to if I was to say the thesis of this movie is that um, which which he never really spells out but I've always taken it as that like he does say like hey Canadians have as much guns per capita as the United States and then I'll say and Germany has a violent history and all these countries like violent video games and stuff like that but I think ultimately what it comes down to is that America has all of it and all of it is worse than the rest of it so it's that that the the reason for our gun violence is that we we really just have a history of violence. We have loose gun laws. We uh, have profiting off of of guns being a major component of of huge corporations and that kind of stuff. So uh, the movie it's worth noting because I'm sure we're going to talk about it, the movie ends. Uh, uh, a couple of vignettes worth calling out, at least in this description, is it talks about how the NRA tends to hold rallies or conventions uh, and this was true well after this movie and before it as well in cities where there was gun violence so they went to Denver pretty quick after Columbine they went to uh, uh, I think Flint after the shooting in Flint um, the NRA likes to say that they had those pre-booked but uh, stuff has come out since then that that's not the case that they tend to actually go there to remind the citizens that uh, guns equal freedom and tragedies can happen and Charles Heston at the time was the president of the NRA and the end of the movie is um, Michael Moore uh, showing up at Charlton Heston's house for an interview and uh, having a confrontation with him about his organization going to places uh, where extreme gun violence has happened uh, insensitively and that ends in a Charles and Heston walking out and I think that is one of still the folk, focal points of where people uh, have a problem with uh, this 
movie. So that Can we get is into a, that part first. Let's let's get right into it. So here's my take. Okay, don't don't say we'll talk about anything later because we no we forget. won't. Well, yeah, no, just so talk here, about it now. Here's my here's my take. Uh, I do think Charles Ness has a very complicated history politically. He did march with Martin Luther King. He uh, was kind of a '60s liberal, um, uh, but I I really have a I really dis- I shouldn't say I have a problem, but I do disagree, and I've really tried to give this a lot of thought with the criticism that he was kind of an old senile guy that Michael Moore made to look foolish. I feel like he's pretty cogent at the end of this movie. I feel like he was representing the NRA, which is has always been a uh, despicable organization, including in 2002. Uh, it's not like they got worse. Wayne LaPierre was still the vice president and doing a bunch of shitty stuff. And I feel like Michael Moore's questions in general, while definitely slanted towards, hey, I want, I don't actually want answers. I want you to feel bad, I think are fair of someone who is publicly going out there to uh, going to these places where tragedies happen to say, yeah, 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 guns are still good even when your kids are dead. It's not just that he was senile. I believe he already had Alzheimer's at the time that this happened. He he came out uh, came out publicly about having Alzheimer's. I think the same year as the movie came out, which would lead me to believe that he was diagnosed with it earlier, which would be at the time of filming. And I feel like in my watching at the time and in my watching now. That comes across. It's not that he is not someone to be criticized. And I think that all of the criticism of him up until that interview is 100% valid. But to interview someone with a memory loss disorder and someone who, you know... Is, is not functioning at the same capacity as everyone else. I don't know. I feel weird about it. And so I'm guess, not saying that I as know. a defense of him at all, because no, I, I, I don't want to defend him in this in the least. And I think there's there's kind of two issues here, right? There's the man Charlton Heston, and uh, there's the figure Charlton Heston, the public figure Charlton Heston. And what he did was he... Uh, capitalized on his own figure. He took those assets and then turned them into NRA spokesperson. Um, Not just NRA president, but like he was hired because uh, not because they needed him to fucking uh, fix the financial books. They needed him to be a person who had been in movies and a bit of badass in movies and had been had good political experience, has good political chops. Uh, I just watching him in the movie. I don't get the sense that he's missing or gone in any way. But, you know, that's kind of hard to tell. I'm not a doctor. Um, I get the sense that he's yeah, and my gra- my grandpa had Alzheimer's, so I get that there is a there's an element of covering that they learn to do very well. Yeah, to make it seem yeah. like they are yeah. Under, but that's also so what politicians that. do when they're uncomfortable, is they just sort of go like, yeah. So I don't I don't get it. Like he reacts really quickly to stuff. Like I, I I'm, not, I'm not I don't think it feels like. It's like it's patently obvious, but whatever. Um, the timing of the issue, I, I don't know. I'm also not a doctor, so I don't know like where it places in that. But I think the idea, if you separate the man from the public presence and what he did when he was still um, clear of mind, was he says, I'm going to parlay 
my public presence into this this new career, this new po- sort of political career, and I'm going to make my strength in speaking to people the strength of a pretty evil group, uh, a pretty awful group, and uh, asking someone like that uh, in a personal context to defend their public persona and just saying, hey, you did a thing. Why did you do a thing? I don't think that's unfair. It's also worth noting. So I went and double check this. So the movie was released in con. It was produced before that. It was released initially theat- um, in May of 2002. It was released to theaters, like publicly, in October of 2002. Uh, Charlton Heston announced his Alzheimer's in um, September of 2002, and at the same time retired from being president of the NRA. So when this movie was shot and initially released to film festivals, he had not revealed his Alzheimer's diagnosis, and he was still president of the NRA. He did that a month before this movie came out, which I'm not saying it's not real, that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, stuff like that, and then at the same time quit being the president of the NRA. I'm assuming a little bit of that timing, not to sound super cynical or conspiracy theory, had to do with the, hey, you're going, like, this movie doesn't make me look great. I'm going to do this right before that that kind of makes you look shitty. So I will say Michael Moore definitely probably didn't have secret information that Charlton Heston had Alzheimer's when he shot or even initially released this movie to film festivals. You're probably right. And it's it's probably I, I think that the cynicism there about the timing is probably true, but it it would make sense to me that it was already an issue when the interview was shot and the place it's less in how he's speaking because i agree that he sounds pretty coherent but it's kind of the way if you compare his exit to dick clark's exit because those are the two famous people that he does the the roger thing with in the movie where he you know just shows up to try to get an interview and Dick Clark's, I mean, admittedly, he's in a car, so it's maybe a little bit easier, but Dick Clark's exit is, like, a lot more graceful, and Charlton Heston's, he just sort of decides at some point that he's done and just sort of, like, is wandering, ambling away, and there's something about him leaving and turning back and then leaving that felt like... There's something not right here. And I, it's, I don't know what I'm reading into it. I don't know how much of it is the stuff I've heard other people say over the years and how much of it is my own perception. But there's something about his body language in that moment that feels like, okay, there's something he's not well. And to be for Michael Moore to have kept this interview the way that he does feels off. So the, the Flint shooting was 2001, I believe. So around the time he's shooting this movie, which is in 2001, Charlton Heston's going to towns to do. So I, which is I, fucked I, up. 
Which is completely fucked up. I agree. Even if he, even if he fucking uh, is like, even if all Michael Moore is trying to do is ruin this spokesperson statue that that they've created, this this image that they've concocted of strength. uh, Even if all he's trying to do is ruin that, it's a noble goal, right? Like, yeah, the idea that this person is coming out in the while the fucking like. (laughs) <laughs> well the fucking bodies aren't even cold yet this this asshole is coming out and talking about how much more important his guns are than people's bodies um the, the, the i i he he's separated i don't know the man in some sense is separated at that point like i my sympathies for the man uh have have diminished almost entire almost to nothing uh because the man has turned himself into a spokesperson that's willing to sell him that that image out for uh, you know any of the most cynical, cold-blooded reasons. I have no sympathy for him whatsoever. There's just something emotionally about that moment that rings uncomfortable, and I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah, and I I understand. Like, I do agree that walk away is a little uncomfortable. I guess part of me sometimes just feels like, well, he was eighty. I mean, I'm not trying. Yeah. To, like, I know. I know how my my grandparents walked at that age too. Like, I I don't I I don't know. Like, I do think that what's interesting is that from a when when I read a lot about this now, it talks about and I. And I don't know if this was purposeful, but, like, it talks about it, even for people that really like Bowling for Columbine, is, like, an unfortunate interview with Charlton Heston post-Alzheimer reveal, which is not true from a timeline perspective. And I think that the, the, the... there was a lot of people that were... didn't like the content and message of this movie and used that to kind of confuse people as to when people knew. And I think that's why even myself, I had to go back and check and go, wait, when did all this stuff happen? Because I do remember that being a criticism of the time. And it definitely is a criticism now, but I I don't think the timing's rightly there. And it's also worth noting, um, I think something we'd all agree is a good. So Charles Neston, part, I mean, the NRA definitely had a resurgence in post-Reagan 90s, and part of it was because Charlton Heston was kind of like the guy everyone agrees with, you know? He is like this um, this figure of this movie star who, like, everyone likes Ben-Hur, and everyone likes uh, the Omega Man and stuff like that, and obviously there's a, you know, he's, he was Moses in the Ten Commandments, and mm-hmm. he has this pretty good, like, at least 60s white liberal pedigree of I marched with Martin Luther King and stuff like that. He lended an amazing air of legitimacy to the National Rifle Association that I think uh, boosted its um, footprint in our culture a lot more than without it. And you can tell that because post so post this movie, Wayne LaPierre, who is everyone kind of knows now, but at the time was the vice president. So uh, Tom Selleck was actually on the board of the NRA for a long time, but decided after they had they had asked him to be the next president because they wanted to kind of continue on that legacy. And he declined because of partially of this movie and worried that he would ruin his his like 
potential movie stardom. He's younger than Charlton Heston, still was doing stuff here and there. So he remained a, an inactive member of the board. Um, and even eventually, like, he, they had to stop selling stuff with Tom Selleck's name. That was a big thing of, like, getting memberships. You get, like, a Charlton Heston silver bullet, you know, with his fake signature etched into it. And Tom Selleck didn't even want to use his name for that because he was just worried of that he would get a similar reception that Charlton Heston's perception got in this movie. And so what ends up happening is they can't find a Charlton Heston-type replacement figure Wayne LaPierre, who is a complete lunatic and also has none of the uh, gravitas or charisma of a Charlton Heston, becomes their public spokesman. Um, And he definitely, you know, the NRA continued on its like right leaning mission and still obviously has a lot of members today. But I think that uh, by having Wayne LaPierre as your as your de facto figurehead, you you stop this kind of like more centrist or left leaning people that associate themselves with the NRA because, oh, well, it's Charlton Heston's organization. He's generally a good person. It became a much more extreme right wing membership by having Wayne LaPierre as its figurehead because they couldn't attract another celebrity president post this movie. Right. I attended an NRA convention and I know a little bit too much about their organization. But time <laughs> um, it, conversation for a different time. <laughs> in terms of humility, let's discuss the difference between this and Fahrenheit uh, 9-11. So I think that the sort of perception of Michael Moore is a sort of blowhard, smug, arrogant fuck um, is uh, completely unfound in this. Um there's uh, there's there's a cartoon section in the middle that I think is kind of smug, but he's not narrating it, or at least he's not. I, I can't tell if he's narrating it with a pitch voice thing. I don't um, think he is. Uh, can I can I put a pin in that cartoon section before we before you? So really quickly. Um, so one of the one of the other big criticisms of this movie that actually that I was actually the one that had stuck with me the most. Was uh, how much fucking Matt Stone and Trey Parker hated uh, Michael Moore after this movie. So Matt Stone does an interview because he uh, grew up in Columbine about what it was like to be like a kid who no one liked. Um, and that if, you know, if these kids had just moved on with their life, that maybe they would have realized that the, the feelings of rejection they had in high school uh, would have potentially gone away and they could have just lived their life instead of uh, doing this uh, act of violence. And... Later, so then there's this cartoon segment that shows the history of the Ku Klux Klan and the NRA. And uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker felt like it aped South Park style and was meant to, because in their quote, it came right after his interview, it was meant to make you think that they had created it. And so much so <laughs> I didn't that. connect the, them at all. So, so. I mean, I guess for the era, but, you know. So in the era, I did, right? And then they fucking hated it so much, they made him the one of the villains of Team America World Police, if you remember. Yeah. Um, and then never talk, like, we're like actively saying that he, he, he rode their coattails to the success of the movie and stuff like that. And I'm, I was like, yeah, that does kind of suck. I remember thinking that they were connected somehow because it came right after. And then I watched this movie and there's 40 minutes of separation between Matt Stone's interview and the cartoon segment. And so even that one that I always thought was a legitimate criticism because I connected those two in my head. Watching the movie, it's like, I don't think you're supposed to think. Like, I may have thought so because I liked in, in 2002, I watched South Park. 
but I don't think you. I don't think based on the placement, you're supposed to suppose that this is a that Matt Stone created this. And the styles based- of the styles of animation aren't even that close. No, I mean, of course, then we all learn that Trey Parker and Matt Stone are. Assholes. Are horrible, anyway, yeah. Horrible, way worse yeah. than like more. But, so it's um, it's got shrill voices. It's 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 stop motion ch- choppy animation that looks like flash animation, like that. All of that is kind of there, but like that's a million cartoons from the era. I don't know. That's an annoying thing for them to to gripe with him with. But really, like we know enough about those guys to know that like they get annoyed with people just for being um, for existing. <laughs> Yeah, for not existing on the same level of Gen X political apathy that they have. So, like, who who gives a shit? Um, But it's no, it it was the only reason I mentioned is because it was just interesting as one of those criticisms that I'm like, (laughs) yeah, this is gives a shit to you. It is an interesting. No, no, no. I but I just meant it like it was one of those things where what I find so fascinating about both these movies as my thesis is how much I was expecting to have to like, well, these criticisms are legitimate. And like, uh, of course, this is shitty that he did. I, I'm not saying there were, weren't any of those, but I was surprised at how many of those I took as givens based on everything I remember hearing uh, post this movie. How many of those actually didn't hold up for me as much um, in actually watching it? And that criticism you know I had completely forgotten about, too. I had completely forgotten that that was a whole thing. And when I was watching it, my husband walked in at one point and he was like, oh, yeah, this is the part that Matt Stone hated. I was like, oh, I have a vague recollection of that. And like I when I, I mentioned to a couple other people that I was going to be on this episode and they all brought up that criticism and that moment. And I'm like, this is just a part of this movie that had completely faded from my memory. And I think it's really it's funny, a, like yeah. what people latch on to. And it's because no one's watched the movie. Like there is yeah. so much separation. Like if that segment was right after even close, but it's like. You're literally talking about, like, the first half hour and the last 40 minutes. Yeah. Like, they're not even close. And it's... But again, I just feel like there is... And and maybe this is just, like, a little bit of, like, the, the liberal lefties in, in myself and maybe you guys, too, where it feels like sometimes the fact that people have a criticism means that there's a legitimacy to it. Like, well... And which is, in generally, a good way to feel. But there was so much shit about this movie in Fahrenheit 9-11 that I feel like... At some point, I just acknowledged all of them to be true <laughs> and said, but I, at least it had a effect on me that was overall, in my opinion, positive. And then so it was surprising to go back and realize, oh, a lot of these were total bullshit. Yeah. 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 That's a that is a that is a. a, a a sickness of our era is uh, this idea that you're more right if you somehow accept both what you believe and uh, 5% of what your enemy believes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's something that I'm glad that uh, Gen Z seems to be shaking off um, is is that the, this idea that like, well, ever, I like Michael, let's say I like Michael Moore. And but a lot of people hate Michael Moore. So for every person I respect that that hates Michael Moore, I need to add two percent to that tally. Like we talked about it already. He's he did it to himself a little bit by the way he acts in interviews. But like the the Michael Moore of this era, Bowling for Columbine, and then going into Fahrenheit 9/11, has a humility and a gentleness of hand that I think he's not really associated with. Uh, the cartoon is kind of the outlier there, um, and I, I wish it wasn't in the movie. 
Uh, I wish he found a better way to talk about like all the it's one of those things where it's like you're right, but you're you're <laughs> annoying, right? Like I don't want to step on a point that Carrie's only just alluded to, but I do think that's why he's popular with younger people. I really liked that segment of explaining something so quickly and easily of something I didn't know that is technically right, but I think his movies have a um a look at this, look at this, look at this quality. Um and a, like, I'm just a slacker who likes smoking pot, too, but maybe the world should be better quality. Yeah. That I think yeah. appeals to, like, I'm not surprised that this is the movie at 19 that made me go, oh, should I care about this shit? Like, yeah. because he is, he is definitely speaking to, like, hey, I just want to watch TV and eat uh, food and have a drink and smoke some pot and hang out with all you guys too but sometimes the world's not so hip like he's almost like a a mr show sketch that like somehow ended up being impactful and sincere it's it's the movie that i wanted as a teenager to explain a lot of these concepts that now as i'm watching it again more of it holds up than I was expecting, but the parts that don't are parts that I wanted a little bit more of a serious take on. Yeah. Like the the part the part that I had remembered being strongest that held up for me the weakest was actually the What a Wonderful World montage. Oh, where I was about to say I love that sequence as like pop doc effectiveness. What 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 rubbed you wrong this one this time? So it's I think that I think that my the the problem I have with it is that it touches on a lot of extremely important issues that a lot of Americans, a lot of American adults still don't really have a good grasp on. Like, how many people do you know that truly understand Iran-Contra? Really and truly. Not, not many. Exactly. I would recommend the book Overthrow that came out in 2004. I forget the author. Very good, though. I would I would recommend episode two of Enemies, a show on Showtime. <laughs> but I like, would also recommend that. <laughs> but like honestly, like there's a lot of stuff covered in like three minutes there that is extremely important that deserves like some real time and attention. Yeah. And the montage, I understand I, I understand how it works. Um from a technical perspective of like we're just going to make this point as quickly as possible because it's not what our film is about but we just want to make this point effectively but i wish that they i wish that he had spent a little bit less time making goofy cartoon jokes and spent a little bit more time actually exploring yeah here is the real shit that we did in all of these other countries that has led to you know, all of this horrible bullshit today and actually giving it some real time and respect and not do it in the form of a smarmy montage. The cartoon segment read as smarmy to me the way the montage didn't because the because to me, the montage is it doesn't use his voice. It's just like it's it's pure statistics over uh, uh, statistics and footage with a song in the background and like the song maybe makes it smarmy, but like the footage with the text doesn't make it smarmy to me at all. It's just saying like the, these are all the questionable things that have happened just since like whatever 1960. 
Yeah, but I wanted I wanted more of it. I wanted more in depth. I wanted like actual time spent on talking about those issues because we've heard of these leaders and countries and, you know, wars and terms, but there are so many people that don't understand exactly what happened. And I think going into a little bit more depth on some of them would have made a greater impact on thinking about what my understanding was when I watched this movie at 16 years old and what my understanding is of those issues now where I'm still I I I like to think I'm a fairly informed person but like there's a lot of stuff there that I don't know very much about and he so had an I, opportunity to do more education I I think that's true but I mean again I'm speaking from a totally non-scientific and completely subjective point of view but you'll notice that's the part that I called out as having the most impact into where I ended up going after this movie. Totally. Um, I mentioned that 2004 book because I read it. Like, the second it came out, I was looking for more information on stuff like this. So, I get it, like, as a 36-year-old that I am now watching that, it's like, it, it, it doesn't have the same impact because I know the stories and there's a lot more there. And yeah, I would. I love the PBS documentary about what actually happened in all these situations, and I've read the book about what happens in all these situations. And you know, every time I, I would still find more articles and 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 Showtime series episodes, for example, interesting on those topics. But like that information felt so new to me that that was enough to make me leave the theater and go, okay, what the fuck did we do? Like, just be, and that's why I do think sometimes the movie uh, is talking to a younger generation. I do think that's why, like when you see like Slacker Uprising or uh, the, the movie that he shot in 2008 where he was doing, it was kind of like another, the big one, which in retrospect is a terrible, both of them are terrible movies. Like they're just his book tour and he didn't know what else to do. And it is weird that Fahrenheit 9-11 is essentially his second movie in a lot of ways. Like he did Roger and me in 1989. And then he did two TV shows, Canadian bacon, a narrative feature that is not very good. Um, and then the big one, which I is love basically Canadian bacon. Come on. I've never I'm, I'm seen just, it. It's it's okay. It has some funny moments, but like it is um it but like he really just like his shows were very good and they kind of followed the spirit of Roger and Demi and other issues. But like from a true follow up to to Roger and me, it's bowling for Columbine thirteen years later. But he made like Slapper Slacker Uprising. He made a another movie in twenty sixteen about a tour that he did to get people out to vote and stuff like that. That like no one I think it was like Michael Moore in Trump Land, I think it's called. Uh, that no one really counts towards his movies, but it was, it's all these like 17 to 22 year olds who are out at these tours in the nineties, in the, you know, 2008 and 2016. And I think it's because like those, he does have a way which can, I think, I think your criticism is fair, Carrie. And I, I agree with it as a 36 year old who knows more about that stuff, but I do think that he has a way of getting people to go, what the fuck is going on? Wait, and then not leave the theater going, I've learned all I need to, but throwing out enough stuff for you to go, I need to read more about this. I need to learn more. I need to go volunteer. I need to, like, he has a way of doing that, that once you are at that point, 
makes some of this stuff more eye rolling. And that's where I'm torn because I agree with what you're saying. And I think that part of the issue and this this gets to my overall issue with the movie in general is that he is throwing so much at the wall and it's not even that what he's putting out there is bad pretty much everything he puts out there has merit and is worth talking about and is vital to talk about when you're talking about guns but he's doing it in a two-hour movie and i it to me, has the effect of feeling a little bit more like lip service to a lot of really important issues that all deserve in-depth attention. And I know that he's not making a frontline series. I know that he's, you know, he he's not a journalist. He's approaching this from an activist perspective. And he also is approaching it from a personal perspective and wants to make a personal style activist documentary that involves going into a bunch of different tangents and exploring a bunch of different facets of things. And all of it to me feels like I want either a sharper focus or more time on all of the different topics or something. But watching it all together, it's like you're giving me little bits and pieces of really important stuff and not giving it the depth and the time that I want. And I think you're right that as a as a teenager or as a young person watching it, it absolutely has an effect of, well, that's all you need to know in order to want to learn more. But I don't know that that then holds up as a, for adult viewers. And that's where I get stuck with him and this movie in particular. I- I think that's fair. So not to go ahead to uh, Fahrenheit 11.9, but I do think that that's a really good example because now I'm watching it as an adult, right? Like in some ways, I, I, I don't need to watch this movie and feel like, oh, shit, what do I need to learn more of? Um, I'm, I'm, and, in some, and like I said, that movie is like, here's updates on, you know, gun stuff. So it meets with the kids of Partland, has like a 20 minute segment that feels like a corollary to Bowling for Columbine. It... The opening is like a direct uh, cutoff from Fahrenheit 9-11 where he's talking about the election and like could this really have happened with Donald Trump and stuff like that. And also makes you relive election night 2016, which it was <laughs> the first 10 minutes of this was like <laughs> the worst thing I ever – I just wanted it over. That's I didn't want to have to see that shit again. No. It's really tough. It's worse than wa- rewatching 2000 uh, in Fahrenheit 9-11. <laughs> but um, uh, but um, – and then it does like a Roger and me update. It spends like 30 minutes on the Flint water crisis and what uh, the governor, I think Rick Snyder's his name and even how Obama came and like was kind of an asshole to everyone about it and all this stuff. And then it spends some time almost doing a sequel to capitalism by following Bernie Sanders campaign. It really is like a follow up to everything that he's done. And I, and I like it for that, but I couldn't also help but watching and going, well, I'm liking all of this. I would also like just an, do a Roger and me on the Flint water crisis. Like don't do 20 minutes on it because there's way more to say. You're revealing all this stuff. Do the hour and a half movie on it because no one else is a going to do that. And B everything you've shown me is so compelling. You should just keep going with that. So I get that. Like I do get that. He, 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 that that's a problem in all of his post Roger and me movies where and part of it is because he ta- like he's tackling gun violence and gun culture 
He's tackling our entire corrupt political system. He's tackling uh, healthcare in the United States, and he's tackling the concept of capitalism, right? Like in his major movies post uh, post Roger Me, which are all like, like mo- if if you went to, I'm assuming, and like, hey, I'm Carrie, I'm going to make a documentary on what the concept of democracy. They'd probably go no. <laughs> That's not how documentaries work. You need to pick. Are you doing a 20 episode HBO series on the history of Dotma? No, just a 100 minute movie on democracy in America. And they're like, fucking Tocqueville needed a 400 page book. And democracy in America was 10 years old at the time. Like, no, you can't do a 100 minute movie on democracy. So he, he does tackle way too broad a subjects and tries to fit everything in them. Uh, so I, it's it's a fair criticism, but it 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 is filled with I think these effective vignettes, and then these eye rolling ones for people that don't need that. Like, hey, remember uh, remember this? Like, did you ever know about this? Look this up after the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Something that so so something that is I think very funny, given how much he does tackle is that in Bowling for Columbine, there was a giant elephant in the room for me on this watch of something he doesn't talk about at all, which is the relationship between gun violence and misogyny. Yeah. And and where that... I didn't even notice that he hadn't brought it up until he's doing the Canada segment. And the Canada segment, I always remembered feeling like, I mean, this is reductive. It's making a compelling point that, like, there is less violence in Canada than there is in the U.S., but, like, it's not true that no one in Canada locks their doors. Like, that's an extremely reductive point to make. But as I was watching that segment, I was started thinking about, oh, yeah, there was that whole Polytech massacre in Montreal that is a huge deal that most of the Canadians I know talk about as like one of the most horrific events in, you know, Canadian violence history. And it was, it was motivated by misogyny. It was the person who did it uh, cited feminism as the reason that he committed this violence. And it was something that came to my attention most prominently when there was that incel massacre, um, only a couple years ago in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's really weird that this, in this movie about gun violence, that this major event isn't even getting a mention. And then it suddenly occurred to me like, oh yeah, that's because that was like a clearly, it, we didn't have the term incel then, but it was like a clearly misogynist incel motivated mass violence. And if you're going to talk about that event, you have to then talk about that potential cause of the violence. And I really appreciate that he talks about the the race element and racism yeah. and poverty and like all different kinds of things. But the fact that he doesn't tie in misogyny, I think, is really troubling. And it's particularly troubling given 
other things we know about things that Michael Moore has said, where, you know, the 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 time that even though I stopped watching his movies after Fahrenheit 9-11, the time that I really fell off with him entirely as a person was in 2010 when he went on Keith Olbermann's show and was defending Julian Assange against his rape allegations. And like he has never had and I think that the more I think about it, like I have I clearly have a lot of like emotional beef with him that isn't necessarily coming from like an entirely rational perspective. And I think it's because he doesn't really include a gender analysis in anything that he does. And like 100% fair. that's really telling. And when he's talking about all of these really important social issues, like the places where women actually show up are in support of male narratives. Like, I I really, one of my favorite parts actually of Bowling for Columbine is the militia sequence towards the beginning. I feel like those interviews are really fascinating. It's totally non-judgmental. And it's one of the few points in the movie where there's like, a real focused attention on like a woman's perspective and story. And it's one that you would never expect to see. Um, But it's always secondary. And so it was in the middle of that Canada segment that I'm like, Oh, he's not getting into that massacre at all. Oh, I think he doesn't talk about this issue at all in the movie. And then I kept waiting for it and waiting for it and never came up. So, of all of the things that he throws at the wall, for that to be what's absent is a little bit uh, coloring for me what he does decide to include. I don't remember if this is in either of these movies, but, like, I remember Awful Truth in his books. Like, when he would talk about women or even, like, as a motivate, like... um Hey, here's why you should be on our side, because you can get a chick. Like, chicks love dudes that are... But he only did the, like, appeal to men, and then kind of just said, well, women are already... He kind of did that, like, faux liberal, women are smarter anyways, we should make a woman president, but almost as, like, a novelty. I remember in, uh, I think, Stupid White Man, he, like... He had a lot of, like, praise for Hillary that was almost, like, a weird form of, like, uh, gender tokenism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, when it's not that, it is the, um, it's the absence of addressing it, right? Like, he doesn't talk about female reproductive care being under attack when he talks about everything else in our health care uh, in sicko, right? He doesn't talk about too much disparity between, uh, I think, did I remember anything in, like, capitalism about the way capitalism treats uh, women as opposed to men, although there's a lot about race. Like, he, he – it's, it's always good that he tends to be – very aware of like the way that race like institutionalized and cultural racism plays a part into uh gun violence fear uh you know healthcare oh yeah uh, economics stuff like that but you're right like if it's not outright misogyny or like kind of like winking misogyny or tokenism misogyny it's like the the it's it's like the sin of omission misogyny where it's weird you never talk about it because actually one of the biggest things with gun violence in this country is the way uh, 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 women are affected by it, especially by men and abusive men in households. Like, uh, yeah, so I, th- I think it's a good call out and I, I think that part of it is pretty uh, 
pretty indefensible on any level. Yeah, and 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 the more the more that I'm thinking about it, the more that I'm thinking that like a lot of my discomfort with him, I think, comes from kind of seeing him as this like loud dude who isn't. Uh, available for women's perspectives on things and isn't available for women's narratives. And when he does include women, it's often in moments where he wants to comfort them or when he wants to have this kind of like paternal approach to them. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong in all those instances. I think that some of those scenes are really powerful. Gives me a clue into who he is and what his priorities are that makes me a little bit wary of his whole persona he's basically had a producing and writing partner for most of his stuff and like the only reason i'm aware of that is because i read credits not because it ever comes up in anything michael moore does uh kathleen glenn oh that's his wife or ex-wife uh was it yeah wikipedia they were married in 1991 divorced in 2014 because i remember it would be like produced even awful truth was like produced by michael moore and kathleen glenn written by and yeah i mean you wouldn't have known that for anything unless you read credits right i remember even uh, thinking like who's kathleen glenn she's very she's in everything yeah that he does i think the omission of uh, violence against women as an output of gun violence is really glaring but the reason that i don't think it uh hobbles the movie um is because the movies all uh never seeks for pat answers for the inputs for gun violence it's never like it's not sad men who just need to be listened to it's like a bunch of different people from a bunch of different backgrounds all filtered through this one focal point and that's easy access to firearms yes and so yeah. it doesn't hobble the movie to me that he doesn't seek that as an output but it does make me question as you said uh michael moore's perspective and how how universal his perspective it is and how inclusive he is as a, as a filmmaker if he doesn't even think about the fact that like uh, you know, I mean, he also like let's let's talk about something like I'm I'm someone who struggled with depression and anxiety before. He also doesn't really tap into the fact that like guns are an easy source of suicides. Uh, having access to a weapon makes you more likely to commit suicide with that weapon uh, or uh, have an accident with that weapon, uh, even if it's a you know unintentional. And some of those are hard to suss out. Um, that also feels kind of uh, glaring to me because he's only focused on Columbine, 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 which is, you know, in some sense, fine. The movie's a pat is, is on its surface about Columbine. But uh, there, there are a lot more outputs to this key problem that uh, are right there sitting on the surface. We were talking about them in the 2000s as well that he doesn't really seek to want to tap into. And that's one of his Limita the limitations of his perspective as a filmmaker, though he does identify the source correctly. It's easy access to weapons that makes Americans more likely to commit suicide with a firearm. And like uh, it's e easy access to weapons that makes um, men more likely to murder women because it's weapons make everything easy. Yeah. So I, I do think that um, and you can do this with a lot of Michael Moore movies. I just mentioned what I would have liked to see Fahrenheit 11.9 be about more than this. I think that you could that with uh, Bowling for Columbine. And this isn't an excuse for leaving out some pretty comp big components of gun violence and stuff like that. But the part of this movie that I still find the most interesting that I wish there was more of was I really find it interesting. The uh 
components of like local media or the way that our media uh, taps into uh, fear, whether it's, you know, as he says in this movie, fear of the black man, uh, fear of um, just everything. Uh, One of my favorite little moments in this movie is right before they cut to the um, going live to the reporter on the scene at the Flint, Michigan uh, kindergarten shooting. Um, They, the, I think the the story right before that is like about are sharks going to come get you or something like that this summer and then they go to this and it kind of reinforces a point that we all kind of know and we see which is like uh, the idea that everything we hear in the news is um, or a lot of what we hear in the news is based on keeping people afraid keeping people scared that the person around the corner is going to shoot you at a time when like gun violence rates are declining story stories of, and they don't really mention this in the movie as much. I think he alludes to a little, but like stories of murders go up uh, quite a bit. And I, I think that's such an important part because what then ends up happening is you hear, you don't hear people complaining about um, that. The media constantly has, stories that are meant to scare you and blow stuff out of proportion, but about how the, the, the media covers too many negative things when they should be talking about positive things. And that's the way like it gets interpreted by, by I think the average person when it actually should be about like, no, the, the, especially, and that's only gotten worse with 24 hour news media, local media being bought up by like the Sinclairs of the world and stuff like that about how it's not necessarily about negative versus positive. It's about what's meant to, um, uh, keep you somewhat scared or fearful so that you, yeah, do consume and, uh, do buy certain products. And that's like, I've kind of been saying not to get like current and talk about something that everyone is thinking about all the time. But like, I do think part of the reason that people don't realize that the COVID-19 is different is because not that SARS wasn't serious or some of these other ones weren't serious, but it's funny. People have posted that like meme of like, look at this, look at all the different uh, sicknesses that people have been like, oh, look, Ebola's gonna get us, and this is gonna get us, and it's it's not that COVID nineteen isn't serious; it's way more serious, and there's contagious rates and how it impacts and how much it impacts. But I do think that part of the reason why, as a culture, we haven't been taking it as seriously as we should is because, um. That chart, those those graphics, that meme isn't indicative of how these things happen all the time and this one will blow over. It's the way that equal reporting time is given to and equal like panicky reporting is given to stuff that really wasn't as big of a deal as this one is. And so how can you, if you're not a avid consumer of news beyond what you caught on the evening news, how can you possibly parse the two as what's serious and what's not. And you either ignore the stuff that you should be focused on or you just are like, everything's a threat. I need to protect myself. The sequence that hit me the hardest watching it this time was the Columbine, not reenactment, but the scene scene of the Columbine shooting using the security camera footage with the audio of 
911 calls and also and also the media calling and the media trying to get interviews and saying like well we just saw you talking to fox so like why aren't you talking to us and like it was the addition of having the media phone calls in there that i feel like really hit that part home of like this is seen by some people as entertainment like they just wanted to get the story they it was a fight from the networks to get the scoop the fastest as yeah, you're watching it. yeah oh go ahead sorry no go ahead as you're as you're watching this like horrific destruction happen it's like and 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 to his credit you know it's not graphic at all it's very no. It's very sensitively done. It's probably the most artful, in my opinion, it's the most artfully done section in the movie where it's like very carefully edited. You're not seeing anything completely graphic, but you're getting the dread and the fear 100%. And it's contrasting that with these reporters and these media people that are seeing it as like, we just want to get the scoop. And that, I think so effectively yeah. uh, addresses with with no with no voiceover for him it so effectively addresses the issues of media and the way that media feeds into violence and like it's just i think that sequence is beautiful so i i bawled the first time i, I remember seeing it in theaters and like in a way that i wasn't affected as like i was affected by 911 or not 911 sorry for by columbine um when it happened, but it also just seemed so distant. It seemed like how do you how do you as a fifteen year old really process what's happened, right? Like, yeah. it, um, even if all of a sudden that's all you're doing in your class all day is watching the news, and also teachers aren't really processing it, so they're like they're not giving you context, which is not a slam on them. It's just like you're just watching the news, and it almost feels like you're watching a movie, and you're too young to process it. So like, really like. And then all you deal with is the fallout as a 15-year-old as I was, right? Like, friends that I knew that, you know, were goths, so to speak, all of a sudden, like, people looking at them suspiciously. Parents uh, groups, like, all of a sudden saying that people need to wear uniforms at my school. Like, like I remember all that shit, right? Um, where it all of a sudden became like – and that's actually something that Michael Moore really taps into is that idea of, like, uh, adults not understanding – Columbine from a high school kid's perspective. Something I appreciate about the movie then, I appreciate about now. He's very good at kind of getting that part where here's all the different ways adults were trying to purposely or accidentally exploit a child's experience at that age and missing the entire point of what it meant to all the kids at that time. Um, but yeah, so that segment is really good and not to pivot to something we really should pivot to very quickly, but I do think in... Uh, Correspondingly, the 9-11 scene in Fahrenheit 9-11 yes. is extremely well done and tastefully done. Like, the both of those – I mean, those are like the two premier tragedies of probably a 10-year time period in there. Yeah. And so easy to be, be termed exploitive or exploitative even by – even just for a political purpose, like look at him, he's exploiting 9-11, he's exploiting uh, Columbine uh, and, and the way he's depicting them. It is telling that even the most critical things, Fahrenheit 9-11, um, all the websites I looked at recently to refresh my memory before recording this, none of them use that. None of them say, look at what he showed here, because I think 
even they can recognize like, oh shit, that's a that's a really good way to get the point without exploiting a tragedy for dramatic purposes. Yeah, he does he does a really careful job. I feel like I, the 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 part of Bowling for Columbine where and I truly don't know how I feel about it. Um, where I wonder about the exploitation is the Kmart scene. Yeah. And like, I don't know to the degree that the kids understood what was happening. And yeah. I don't know to the extent that he pushed them to do it, or I don't know yeah. how much how much agency was involved. It's it was that was the sequence where I was like, oh, this is really gonna bother me. And then as I was watching it, I was like, oh, this isn't as bad as I remembered, but it's bringing up questions of yeah of authorship and ownership and it's it, it especially and this is a very hindsight thing but especially in light of having seen the parkland kids like show up and doing do their own damn activism and how strong teenagers and survivors of violence can be in like really advocating for themselves i was like do these do these teenagers need michael moore to do this for them could they have done it themselves? I don't know. I don't In know. I, I think so. Yeah. Because I think the reason the Parkland kids were so successful in spreading their message was because they had social media. Yeah, you're which, probably which, right. Which, 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 which we're saying, as someone who just saw Fahrenheit 11.9 and has the Parkland kids in it, they say that explicitly to Michael Moore. Like, they say... we we. So Michael Moore actually is, is uh, pretty good in those sequences. He is literally just documenting them. He's not mm-hmm. adding commentary. He's like there. The he's kids very have a clear. lot he's, to say in, in and, and they had a, Fahrenheit and, 9-11 too. Yeah. And at one point um, in Fahrenheit 11-9, the kids say, well, uh, Michael Moore, <laughs> uh, I'm glad he left this in because he goes, yeah, I think if I can say one thing our generation did well was at least raise your generation who might actually affect change. And one of the kids goes, you didn't raise us. Social media raised us. <laughs> Um, Hell and it's yeah. a really great moment because awesome. he nods. He's like, "Oh, like that." I and again, to his credit, he leaves it in the movie, right? Yeah, like, he tries to kind of take a little bit of credit while giving them, like, "You guys are doing it. You don't need my help." And the, the Parkland kids, like, "No, fuck nope. you. You didn't have anything <laughs> to do with this. The reason that we know how to have this voice is because of, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all this kind of stuff." So. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my, Peter's right. Like to the point that the Parkland kids say it to Michael to Michael Moore's face yeah. in the movie. Uh, but what's nice is that the ki- the two kids that he selects for um for camera in uh, Bowling for Columbine, um he does let them I, I was saying he has a gentler touch in this movie um than he's typically associated with. Uh he does let them talk a lot. Like there's yeah. a few yes. sequences where he has to kind of like Hey, here's why we're here and like talk to the authority figures. But but he, there's a lot of the footage he ends up leaving in is, uh, you know, the, the kids speaking to these authority officials and being like, yeah, like this is why I'm in a wheelchair. This is why my body is filled with filled with pockmarked holes of where bullets went in. Like the, the, the kid lifting up his shirt doesn't do that because uh, Michael Moore told him to. He's like, yeah, I want to show you what, you what you guys did. And like, yes, sure. He might have primed them up a little bit. But the point still stands that he is making these corporations, uh, Kmart in this case, um, 
face uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, he's making them uncomfortable. Uh and like it, it, it yeah, and like worst case scenario, the kids were a little bit confused and he made them feel more politically powerful uh once the movie came out. So like I'm I'm with you. Like I you have to think especially with kids, especially with victims, especially with young victims, you have to be thinking about um what am I doing with them? Am I quote unquote politicizing them? It's like no. Uh, the NRA started this off as, as a uh, attack on the kids uh, and kicked off their ghoulish tradition of attacking children um, uh, it, during Columbine and uh, before Columbine. Um, but really, like with Columbine and uh, after that shooting in Flint was when uh, people started being aware, being aware of like, oh, the NRA is actively acting as a PR group to step in and try and take control of the narrative. And as soon as that happened... The, the kids are allowed to do whatever the, the kids are allowed to say and feel and do whatever the fuck they want, right? Like they can react to this however they emotionally need to react because they've been turned into political props as um, uh, someone to be ignored, um, frankly. Like they've been turned into, oh, isn't it so sad that they got shot? But that was just a freak weird accident. You know what we can do to stop that in the future is metal detectors in schools. Um, you know yeah. what we can do to stop that in the future is stop all these metal albums from getting sold. Like that's sort of, uh, that's, they, they were being politicized before they had a chance to leave the hospital. So totally the 100% yeah, yeah. yeah. all right so they so weren't one thing around they weren't sitting around playing uh, the ball and cup game that kids play all the time <laughs> i know yeah it is weird that like yeah the adults reaction at the time was like well the problem is the kids suck and aren't interested in things i like <laughs> <laughs> so of course this is going to happen um, we, before we go we, to uh, fahrenheit 911 yeah, which we need to do, point. like, right fucking now. <laughs> yeah, uh, we need to make a point real quickly. So, Super Size Me, um, they shot it in Feels my... Feels off topic. They shot it in my, uh, <laughs> home, they shot it in my hometown uh, when the, the scene when uh, Morgan Spurlock goes and uh, uh, looks at some uh, fat children and says, oh, these these poor fat children. Isn't it so sad that these poor fat children are fat? Like, it's it's a really condescending, awful scene, and it happened like 10 minutes from my house. Um, yeah, so when they go talk to a militia in this movie, <laughs> um, they go talk to a militia in uh, Wayne County, um, which is... Uh, where this is the county where my uh, wife grew up and where her <laughs> her parents still live to this day. Um, so in a weird way, this month has uh, connected us uh, with America's problems uh, through our, uh, you know, middle America, heartland, small towns. Uh, the key issues that we're, we're looking at this month that America continues to be hurt by uh uh, they happen to be shot essentially in both of our towns. <laughs> and fun very, fact, very when we do weird. Inconvenient Truth next week, uh, you guys both live on a planet that's going to be on fire soon. Oh. So I feel oh, we'll sad. get there. It's all tragedy. I'm glad hey, we're doing I high school. There. Yeah, I live on that planet. <laughs> that's the one? Uh, yeah, so really quick, you know what, Peter? I'm just like, let's not even do a recap of Fahrenheit 9 11. Fahrenheit 9 11 tells the story of Election Day 2000, Bush v. Gore to 9 11 to us getting lied into the Iraq War and how everyone uh, lied 
everyone's motives were suspect and how we should make sure that we don't do something crazy like reelect him in 2004, uh, which, uh, spoiler alert for the past, uh, we did. It was very disappointing. Um, but uh, if you're from the future, you also know it's probably not the most disappointing election you've lived through. So, uh. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, this movie, like I said, uh, ext- like I, I was primed for it in that I was very much Bush can go fuck himself by this point. Uh, like actively like getting my friends to be political as much as possible too, which actually was surprisingly successful. I didn't become the worst person in the world uh, to my friends. Uh, but I think stuff like Bowling for Columbine and like getting some DVDs of the awful truth was like, can you believe this shit? Um, and so, yeah, organize a group of people to go see this movie. Uh, my, my thesis on it today is that it was – ineffective but at least a rallying cry in 2004 for a lot of people and maybe hopefully had the same bowling for columbine impact where yes john Kerry was not elected president our best and brightest um, but but maybe you were somehow motivated by this movie to go on a journey that led you into a better political sphere and ideas than you would have been without it i don't know maybe that's the hope um Watching it in 2005 would would have been painful. It's why no one did. 2006, 2007, 2008, irrelevant. My pitch for it now is actually uh, that it's more effective and more interesting than it was in 2004 or definitely right after. In that, watching this movie, I thought I was going to be like, oh, look, uh, it's a, how innocent and young this treaties against uh, B- the Bush family. And instead it was like, a lot of stuff that I could have probably spouted off at the tip of my tongue in 2004, it was like a reminder of the history from 2000 to 2004. And um, looking at it from a historical perspective of what life was like after 9-11, what with the Patriot Act and the way things got super weird and Christian and a lot of other stuff while like we got lied into a war, while why. It's crazy that Bush was president the first time, not just because of the Florida stuff, but because, yeah, he was a dipshit son of another kind of evil president surrounded by other evil people. Like it um, at, at a time when we're like as a culture, I feel like rehabilitating George Bush's image because he's not Donald Trump. Like, I do think it works so much better as a snapshot in a history like a Harlan County USA or something like that Mm -hmm. um, than it it did as like uh, activism. I agree. I feel like this is a movie you could show like an America Since 45 class. Um, Yeah. You you could show them like this this movie and basically like entail how Bush got into office without sort of Oliver Stone hagiography. Well, Oliver Stone makes him compelling. That's what's so weird about both W and uh, uh, Vice. Yeah, yeah. They're not. He's just an idiot. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 I think this movie pretty clearly lays out in gentler terms than that, like how um, how Bush was put into position as a mark, essentially, to uh, he was he was put forth as, a, you know, fa- fail son of a, a corporate dynasty and how they needed uh, someone to be in that seat. 
uh, and why not my son? And then I can control him by uh, setting up these oil deals abroad with the Saudis. And then we'll put in the VP seat, the real president, who will be <laughs> setting up uh, war deals. And it's just interesting because like when I was watching this, I forgot how I openly corrupt everything was yes yes but just not covered in any like capacity it was it was a sour comfort for me where i was like oh things aren't particularly shitty now they've always been shitty got it oh god yeah i thought i thought like uh i I was you know I, i think because uh similar to you know how michael moore was uh you know Michael Moore was uh, averaged out, so to speak, by Republican detractors. Mm-hmm. Um, not to disregard like us us having serious criticisms of him and plenty of liberals having serious criticism of, of him. But uh, in a similar way, George Bush was brought to a sort of averaging um, in a sickening way where uh, I, I think we we learned to just disregard him as sort of a dummy, uh, sort of like a dummy or like, you know, a sweet meaning dummy that, you know, he really shouldn't have been president. But, you know, he paints those those paintings and and, you know, the Obamas seem to get along with him at baseball games and funerals and shit. So, like, why, you know, maybe he wasn't so bad. Like, this is a nice form of, as you said, history. And it can be taught in America since history for American history since 45 class. Like, this is this is what we were going through. This is the thought process that we were we were processing. And uh, this is how the the kleptocracy that we live in today was also living in unabated, living unabated for the eight years that Bush was in office. It was just a different type of kleptocrat, right? Like um, we had warmongering kleptocrats under Bush, uh, under Trump. Like Trump has a completely different like Wall Street kleptocrat that like doesn't quite trust uh, going to war as a source of economy booming. Like uh, it's a different sort of thief, um, but yet still a thief. Well, in, in some ways, I would actually say that, like, uh, the, the, I mean, so if Breitbart is like an offshoot, an even more evil offshoot of Fox News, right? Like, the Trump cabinet and all those people are like the people who are raised to model themselves after the Fox News and the George W. Bushes and the Dick Cheneys. And, like, you know, it's not like they become equally evil. They just, they, they are, they are, they are now raised, um, with less information, right? Like Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, those types of people that cause all the, you know, all those George H.W. Wish were raised with a level of information that was like based on factual and then decided to profit off a lot of the the areas that they saw. And what you see now with, I think, the, the Trump team, cabinet, dynasty, whatever you want to call it, is people who were raised by the propaganda that those people used yeah. to – to um, disguise their actions or hide what was going on in plain sight. And one of the things that this movie or even Stupid White Men, the book that outlines a lot of this stuff that came out in actually 2001, um, in some ways it's almost an adaptation of a lot of that book, I remember. Uh, it, it, it felt like it was like, hey, all those – why is no one else talking about this stuff? Like they they've somehow made this they they've 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 they know how to play the media into this like uh 
there's things Republicans say and there's things that Democrats say, but there's no truth. And I think uh, Lee Atwater and Reagan and all those people kind of started that in the in the 80s. And then, you know, Cheney and those uh, Carl Rove and all those people kind of continued it on and kept building on it in the 2000s. And now we've got to the point where you just don't even need to pretend there is a truth and have. And that's why the media feels so impotent now in that it's like uh yeah we don't even need to pretend you matter because we know how you're going to report it and there's going to be a new story the next day and nothing actually is ever going to connect and you just have like a uh it's it's like uh i guess the, the best uh way i can describe it is like uh if um if the 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 the, the rove lee atwater reagan bush Cheney era is like the aliens in, in the movie Aliens. Like, you don't want that shit because all of a sudden there's more of them and they're going to kill you and they're they're pretty savage and they're not going to leave any witnesses and stuff like that. Like, the tr- what that led to was, like, the alien hybrid weird uh, babies in, <laughs> in Alien Resurrection where, like, should this even exist? This is just a monstrosity without a, uh, <laughs> without a home, really. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a complete monster with no necessarily drive except anger because it exists in the first place. Like, that's kind of where we're at. It's uh, pretty fun. Uh, pretty good times. Uh, you know, I'm glad to live in interesting times. It sucked to be bored all the time instead of uh, anxious and helpless. <laughs> Part of what makes this film work so well now is not just the fact that, yeah, it's it's resembling stuff that we're pretty used to in our day-to-day currently, but there's also been time that has been allowed to pass and i think that when fahrenheit 911 came out there was such fatigue of talking about 911 and like yeah. the war in iraq was like you know at its peak and there was no escape from any of it that watching a 2 hour documentary about it was just like this is all our lives are right now. Why would why would we want to engage in this in this way? Allowed to have some years of distance, it feels a lot more impactful. Like I was not expecting to walk away from this experience liking Fahrenheit 9/11 more than Bowling for Columbine, but that's what ended up happening. And I think that it's in part because the movie coming out so close to all of the events kind of cheated it in a way and made it lose some emotional impact and now having some space and distance from it it's really landing in a fresher way i don't know if that was your experience but that's something that i've been thinking about a lot as we're uh still in both of the wars uh pertaining to this movie like the fact that it's still relevant is um upsetting in a different way like yeah uh at the end of bowling for columbine you feel a weird sense of hope that maybe we're going to be able to change things and there's a there's a sort of distant 
um, long lost future that I'm sort of pining for this alternate timeline where we actually got our shit together, right? Uh, especially coming right after Columbine and the realization that we weren't going to fix anything. I was like, well, yeah, obviously we're still in both of these wars. Obviously things are still terrible. Obviously we're still making these horrific mistakes and continue to make these horrific mistakes. And then when uh, the idea of more making a Fahrenheit 11.9 to me is also like, well, you yeah, I mean, there's more to talk about here for sure. Like, all of this needs to be documented somewhere. But, like, I, let me guess the pattern. Uh, <laughs> we we continue to involve ourselves in foreign conflicts that we have no fucking right to be involved in. Um, the wrong people get richer. Uh, and we never quite let go of our connections to these these uh, these lands. We quite never give them the sovereignty to continue to, to go on. We'll always kind of pop in. We'll keep a military base there. Yeah, we'll drop we'll drop 10,000 troops in. All right, it's going to be 20. Uh, but we're going to reduce it down to 2,000. And then six months later, when everyone's like, wasn't this supposed to go down to 2,000? Like, sorry, did we say two? We meant seven. Like, that... That sort of like a uh, never ending spiral of imperialism is very predictable. And I feel like uh, watching these movies back to back complemented one of each, one each other in a weird yeah. way, but also sort of like made Fahrenheit 9-11 less shocking because I was like, oh, yeah, we, we we drop the ball all the time. Like, I, I didn't even have time between <laughs> yeah. movies to remember that America constantly drops the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you just have like, I mean. In some ways, like, it, the corruption and everything else that you see is quaint, right? Like, literally, today, uh, you have Republicans and the right going on TV and saying, yeah, you, you're, some of you guys are going to have to just accept that you're going to lose grandma. Grandma's cool with it. Like, you're going to have to sacrifice your grandma so that Boeing is rich again. Like, all these companies are rich. Like, and that's just people now just say that on the news and no one has any idea what to do with that except that like, well, uh, Republicans are focused on the economy and Democrats are like, it's it's insane how far we've come from this. While also um, recognizing that like, it's all the same, sh like as Peter said, like it's all the same shit. Like we we haven't actually moved past. There's blips of hope, and it was like this beforehand too. Like read about fucking Warren G. Harding or Wilson's administration or Andrew Jackson or I don't know the founding of America. Like it's it's amazing. Uh, one thing that I really like that Michael Moore says in, in Fahrenheit eleven nine is that. The mistake that we've had was that this ever was a great nation. Like, it could still be one, but we've never, ever been. Like, this this kind of pining for an, when America was great, we've never been great. We've always been awful. Like, and like, we, we only note the wins because we're the ones that are writing our own history all the time. And like... And he says that he's made a mistake into thinking that, like, there's there's ways that we can make this country great in ways that it used to be when it never was. And but maybe there's still time to finally, after 240 years or whatever it is, actually make this country a great nation, um, which feels less and less likely at the time. But like, yeah, uh, his his tone in Fahrenheit. Who won that election? Which was the 2004 one? Yeah, who won that one? I didn't have time to Google between George George W. Bush. <laughs> really? What After is all that? What is? We talked a little bit about this last week. 
It is interesting that, like, the thing that people, I think, when they think of George W. Bush is, yeah, the Iraq stuff and the Mission Accomplished banners in there, but, like, I think they actually think of his second term more than his first. Uh, in that, like, you have Katrina, the Democrats win in 2006, nothing happens for two years because, like, uh, no one knows what to do because the Democrats are like, well, we need to somewhat resist this and, like, um, I think people forget what that first term was like in retrospect. And uh, since I know we're not going to have time to talk about it in detail, the part of the movie that really, I think, um, does, I think if you were trying to educate someone of what it was like to live like live in this country post 9-11, I think the segment on uh, the the fear and the panic, which, again, feels like a corollary to Bowling for Columbine of like all the different weird products on the market. The fact that sometimes the president would just come out and say it's we've moved the alert up the way that when that happened, airports got weird and every I remember they shut down my mall, the mall in Fargo, North Dakota on Halloween one year because there was like a FBI threat that the terrorists were the quote unquote terrorists were like uh targeting malls on Halloween and like that kind of palpable sense of like neighbors against neighbors. People could say things and end up in this weird situation. Like it was like a real thing. I mean, that was happening all the time. I remember it even in my like pretty isolated, like white as shit, uh, Fargo, North Dakota. I can't even imagine what it was like in a, in a city with, uh, anyone who looked, uh, like they, uh, you know, could have been from Middle Eastern descent or something like that. Like, it was ins- it was insane how you had all these people trying to both profit off it and then constantly just scare the shit out of you for this vague stuff that none of it made any sense. And uh, it, it, like, it really was, like, overwhelming in a way that uh, made you almost, like, not understand. Like, you just would either, again, I remember either being like, this is all dumb and ignoring it, uh, or <laughs> people that were like, I need to go get gas. These are, like, kids my age, 18-year-olds in college, right? Like, they either were like, this is dumb, why can't I go to the mall right now? Everyone's being stupid. Or I had friends that were like, uh, gas went up 10 cents, I need to get it now, because I think there's going to be a war with them. You know, it was like that for us and again we were completely uh not in any situation where it was even the worst of it because uh we were again um white college kids in fargo north dakota and uh, to give a glimmer of hope though um i don't know if you have seen the news today uh, but uh there's a key- we can't i know i can't because i can't leave the house peter so i can't wait to hear this glimmer of hope <laughs> yeah so the um in the in the film uh a little celebrity is featured britney spears talking about how much she loves oh, yeah. oh yeah 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 i, I did see this yeah. i did read the news yeah uh and today britney spears has come out as a uh a marxist uh yeah. a red a red rose uh donner uh <laughs> all she did was just retweet some stuff that was socialist leaning but it felt good that the day we're recording this uh march 24th um we're uh we're seeing you know a a change in the culture a change in the winds is happening uh at least to continue the fact that like no bernie's not going to be the president uh at this point um no we're not going to get the 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 
Trumpy assholes out anytime soon. Um, let's hope that in November, uh, Joe Biden's promise that he was going to pull in a bunch of independents is different than John Kerry's promise that he was going to pull in a bunch of independents and soft Republicans. Um, let's hope. Be great. I would love to be wrong. Um, but it's uh, as we head towards the future, the only thing that comforts me uh, is that uh, the young people will uh, eat all of us um, and, and, and uh, prove to us how wrong we were. Um, so it's it's great that like a 13 year old now is smarter, more smart politically than I was. Uh, yeah, I had completely forgotten about her having that soundbite in the movie. And it was honestly kind of disturbing because not not that it's surprising that pop stars and celebrities have bad opinions. Like if you saw, um, oh, what's her face? Who had that stupid um, Corona video the other week on Instagram? But like it's, oh, people are yeah. people Vanessa are. Hudgens. But, yes, Hudgens, thank you. Yeah. Yes, like I, I follow her on Instagram and I watched the video before anyone had reported on it. It was it was pretty. <laughs> Why do you follow Vanessa Hudgens on Instagram? I, like, I, like I mean, her. she's wonderful. She's I enjoy Spring Breakers a lot. She's great. But like, Spring she Breakers said something. She said something very stupid there. So like, it's not new. Oh, it's not new that Britney Spears um, is, you know, falling into that same pattern. But thinking about how big she was in 2004, and thinking about like how many people were looking up to her. And the fact that someone that mainstream could be so pro-Republican is, like, kind of twisted. Because I don't think that's as much the case now. You're not going to find as many pop stars who are like, yeah, let's support Trump. Like, obviously, there's Kanye. But, like, it's not it's not the same thing, right? Yeah, I do think... I mean, yeah. No, Britney Spears was huge. It's funny because Britney Spears is also... They have a clip of her and Religious too, because she thinks God, which feels a little less uh, <laughs> relevant. But um, when she wins an MTV movie award, music award, whatever. People um, always thank God when they win those. I, I We talked about it. <laughs> it I, I'm so conflicted because, A, like, she was, what, 20 at the time? She'd been in a celebrity bubble her entire life. Like, yeah. Do you, like, as someone who, again, if you would have asked me, if I was a celebrity when I was 18 and you asked me what I thought about George W. Bush, I would have been like, thank God he's the president during 9-11 over Al Gore. That's what I would have said. Yeah. So I think I think it's a little shitty to feature it while also recognizing, like, Britney Spears has a lot more influence than I did when I was her same age. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted over it a little was bit. Was that I'm in cl- reaction to the Dixie Chicks thing? Because I'm seeing that they happened uh, both in 2003, it looks like. Um, I mean, but again, that that is so, I'm so... That should be in the movie. <laughs> Maybe that's speaking to Michael Moore leaving women out mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of places. But, um... Have you guys seen, yeah, I, have you guys seen Shut Up and Sing? Oh yeah, shut up and sing is great. I don't really like their music, but I love the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, that's that's one I would be curious to revisit actually, because I remember seeing it when it came out and loving it, and I'm curious. I actually how, just I bet revisited it, does... it a couple years ago. It yeah. holds up great, beautiful. Uh, yeah, they they rule. But that's a really good example of like, I I remember the outcry that they dared say something against George W. Bush and were banned from country radio stations, and that was like an example of a. 
that was a really good example in a microcosm or a macrocosm of what was going on in the world at the time. The fact that this like band who their last album had eight number one singles on an album of nine songs could be and was the biggest country music act in the world was literally like banned into submission was cut off from country music because they said uh not not everyone from like something pretty innocuous like just because he's from texas doesn't mean we support this president in this war like and that was enough to nationally ruined their career for saying something like that. Like, that's why people were like, uh, free speech is under attack in this country. We talked about that actually a little bit last week where like, where it sort of gave all these asshole comedians the feeling like, how do we fight against uh, free speech? I know I'm a white guy is going to say the N word now. And everyone was like, good. <laughs> yeah. Louis CK, uh, oh. free speech bastion. But like, I think, but like when we talk about that culture conversation, I think the people that, the reason why people were rallying against or rallying for some of these people that ultimately were just completely awful was because it did feel like you couldn't say shit all of a sudden. Like this weird post 9-11 clampdown. I think this movie would have been better for including that whole Dixie Chicks thing because that happened to a lot of people. We talked last week about Bill Maher getting kicked off the air in 2002 for saying that you can say that they're the terrorists are a lot of things, but I don't think you can call people that commit suicide cowards. And that was it. Shows off the air. Like, that was happening all the time. People, the most famous people in the world needed to watch what they were saying or their careers could be ruined. That is, yeah, now that you mention it, that is a really interesting omission that he doesn't get into the Dixie Chicks. Part of why uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 held up better for me than Bowling for Columbine is because it is a much tighter focus. Um, It's not... I, like I, I still don't entirely know that I can trace uh, Michael Moore's thesis in Bowling for Columbine, but I know exactly what Fahrenheit 9/11 is about um, completely, and it's very focused, and it still has some of his less great tendencies, and they're a lot more amplified because the movie as a whole is a lot tighter and sharper, but. You know, because it's so focused, the stuff, the more extraneous stuff that isn't included, you think like, okay, well, he was actually being a little bit, uh, he was being a little bit more careful here about what he was including and not. But it's true in the context of that Britney Spears moment, which kind of hit me as like, oh, yeah, I didn't remember her saying anything about politics back in the day. It's interesting that this clip is around. Um, it's interesting that that's there and there is no Dixie Chicks contrast because it seems like similar things are happening. But uh, yeah, uh, Peter, before we recorded, said maybe we should try to make this into two episodes. I don't know how we're going to get in all into one. And I said, no, we can do it. And Peter, I was 100% wrong. We, <laughs> we could have probably done three hours on both of these movies, although I think getting people to listen to one uh, because of all the reasons we talked about today will be, um, will be a challenge in and of itself. So but, here's my um, argument. Here's my argument, though. Yeah, let's wrap um, with final thoughts. When you're talking about documentaries, you don't need necessarily need to hit every single point in how they build their argument. That's one way to approach it. But like... Um, that's not necessarily how we even approach movies. Like, yeah. we don't talk about necessarily how this character got here to here. Like, we might in our plot recap and broad strokes. But the point is, uh, how did this journey make you feel? How do you think the journey was executed? Uh, 
where does it place in the culture? Where did it place in the culture? All that is a more interesting topic than us just running you through a synopsis of the points Michael Moore makes. So um, I would say watch both movies for your own edification. They're weirdly, uh, despite the, the, the set out sort of um, thesis of this month, which was that these are movies nobody has watched in forever. I want to encourage people to watch both of these movies. Uh, they were timely and uh, dramatic, dramatically compelling in a way I did not expect. Uh, they never sag. Uh, the, 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 the stories told in them should not be forgotten. Um, and in some ways are not being forgotten because they're being repeated. Uh, and, and yeah, like I, we didn't get into like every single argument more makes here, but like, the broad strokes are this. America has a series of st systemic problems with imperialism and uh, business infiltrating our government uh, and how we make decisions that feeds that imperialism and also feeds a sort of uh, mining of our culture from within. So sort of uh, violence out and violence in um, that hurts everybody, uh, but the most rich, but the most uh, protected. So uh, that is that is a as broad stroke top level as I can get. But in a weird way, these movies lead very well into one another um, because the the themes that Bowling for Combine begins to to work on um, that America's uh, business relationship uh, and, and capitalism in general has. Uh, greatly hindered our ability to make ethical decisions in foreign policy and in domestic policy uh, is, is, is as relevant as ever. The whole impetus of this month and wanting to do this movie was me thinking, why the heck would anyone want to watch Fahrenheit 9-11 in 2019 or 2020? And instead... Uh, my new takeaway is everyone should watch Fahrenheit 9-11 in 2020. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Moore's, Moore's definitely not, not uh, has a lot of problems as a person. I think hopefully we we gave it some some uh, time here because it is worth talking about. I wish we would have had more time to talk about the Assange stuff and some of his comments. You should look it up. It's super shitty. And uh, as, as Carrie kind of pointed out, it's... Um, reflective of a whole missing piece in a lot in a lot of his documentaries but uh his he is unlike the last two uh, filmmakers we saw he makes he's a very good filmmaker uh who makes very cogent points i do think the other thing that um is worth calling out i think a lot of the now that there's not real criticism of his movie but i think at least f for me personally my memory of the bullshit uh, we want to do everything we can to poke holes into Michael Moore as a filmmaker and his facts stuff uh, mixed up with legitimate criticisms of the, his narrative style to the point that I thought that half of this movie would be full, half of these movies would be full of um, disproven bullshit. And that's really not the case. There's definitely, again, some ways that he presents facts um, that definitely could be done cleaner um, and some other, like I said, even though I don't have much of a problem with the Charlton Heston stuff or some other things. I think there's uh, definitely fair criticism. I think the Kmart kid's a really good example, something I felt more uncomfortable or more conflicted watching than I did in, in 2002. But ultimately, I think um, for the most part, his actual statements that he says and facts that he's saying are, are relatively 
airtight. Um, especially, I was amazed at how there was essentially nothing uh, that about Fahrenheit 9-11. And um, that was like, this is just demonstrably false or misrepresentative. Um, which makes sense, because he was so attacked on Bowling for Columbine. I don't know if you guys remember this. He actually... Um, released a book in tandem with Fahrenheit 9-11 called the Fahrenheit 9-11 Reader that had all of his statements and facts throughout the movie. It was like a 300-page book that was a bibliography of everything he said in the movie to try to and, – and as such, looking for any criticism, it was – difficult to find and again i'm not saying that you couldn't find something i just my perception of it was like this is going to be a bunch of fantastical shit mixed with a point i agree with and that didn't end up being true so i actually i don't think we should do another month with this but i would be interested in in maybe with the both of you at some point just doing a special epi on roger and me and capitalism a, tr- uh, a true love story because i think those two are good bookends. Um, and also, um, I think you could make a case that Roger Me is his most focused movie and uh, capitalism might be his most uh, currently vital. I fear that I've been like all over the place on this episode. I hope I've been somewhat coherent. It's just that it, talking about Michael Moore and thinking about Michael Moore is just a, a huge mess of contradictions for me. And that really came through in this rewatch where I don't, I'm not sure where all of my opinions begin and where it is bumping up against everything that I know about him through, uh, bullshit that conservatives have said about him and like actual legit criticism of feminists that I follow and and then my own personal like that's the thing like the person the deeply personal betrayal that I kind of felt as I started watching other films other documentaries and uh, you know personal documentaries activist documentaries and kind of starting to see like other more artful ways of making this kind of film and then thinking back to him and thinking like this is why did I think that this was the way to do it why did I think that this was the right approach and it's not that it's the wrong approach it's not that he's necessarily doing something that's totally wrong and I do think that there is a reason why he hits home with young people and that's important Mm -hmm. but there is just a certain taste that he leaves in me that like it it, the sequences in his movies where he is the least obtrusive where he's just letting the story happen and he's letting people talk and he's letting the events unfold i think are actually pretty strong and where he's when he inserts himself and where he shows up I start getting really uncomfortable and I don't know how much of that is just my own personal biases against him or what he's actually doing, but it's complicated. He's such a conflicting person and I, I, I feel like I've worked out some of it tonight, but gosh, I mean, this this just brought yeah. up a lot of feelings. <laughs> I think that's entirely fair. I mean, I went into this being... Uh, thinking I was going to be more critical of Michael Moore and then surprised myself that I ended up feeling like I had been overly critical, at least from a 
movie standpoint. But then again, you know, we talked about complicated feelings a lot, like as a person and as, is he the right messenger? And like you said, there's, there's so many, they have, fuck, there's so many good Iraq documentaries. Go watch No End in Sight or Control or some of these other ones that we've talked about so far this month. Like, uh, and then, yeah, he, he definitely like his Assange comments, his general, like, kind of like again various degrees of misogyny and and also just like i hate like he we didn't get into this but like he built such a career around stunts that sometimes all he just is constantly doing weird stunts yeah like when he like constantly threat says he predicts the person he doesn't want to win is going to win the election and then for trump took credit as a soothsayer but then like you also said that barack obama was going to lose to mccain and to Mitt romney like it's just your thing that you do to motivate people so great you can either say thank god i I scared enough people but then don't act like now listen to me i'm a prophet who knew trump was gonna win like you do this every time yeah asshole like there's so much in there that is worth criticizing and yeah so i totally first of all i i do think uh, I'm so glad you're on this episode. Um, I, 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 um, it, it is a complicated topic, and I'm, your perspective, both from on a personal, from a documentary standpoint, and just uh, everything else, was so invaluable. You, we always love having you on. I'm so glad you're on for this episode. And if we do decide to do a special epi on Roger and me and capitalism, um, I hope you'll join us because I do get the sense that uh, all of us could have talked for three more hours. Oh about, God, yes, uh, more and a bunch of other stuff too. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank uh, you. This you- was a blast. <laughs> Good. I'm glad it was worth stayed up for for both of us uh not for peter i think it's like uh breakfast time (laughs) all right well we this is the first time in a while we haven't had you booked for another episode but i bet we'll do it pretty soon because we love having you on um (laughs) next week we wrap up uh this month with uh another depressing documentary that we're gonna look back and go huh Things have only gotten worse, uh, which is uh, – but I also I'm, – I'm interested to tackle this one as something that I don't feel like it's a movie that ever really got much rewatches because you either wanted to see it because it was part of the cultural conversation or you – you got the information and, and moved on with it because it's unlike the rest of these is not trying to be dynamic as a movie. It's trying to give you information uh, as much as possible in a way that you can show your friends. And that's an inconvenient truth, which is, you know, a literally a PowerPoint presentation or a, uh, being being delivered into movie theater, so I'm I'm kind of excited to revisit this just because I don't I don't remember it enough to even know what to expect. Um, besides the elevator that he uses, which was vastly parodied uh, beyond this. And if we have time, I'm going to try to watch the sequel that came out last year that everyone ignored, just like they ignore climate change. Uh, but with that, uh, oh, and we're joined by the Kosky brothers who. Uh, are also against climate change. And now that they're back, we can't get rid of them. So <laughs> they're living in our basements. Uh, Peter, you got anything else to say as we close this one out? They're going to ask if I have something to promote. <laughs> Do you have anything to promote? Uh, no. No. Uh, I'm just I rushing ahead so I can go to bed. Good vibes. When the president 
talks to God are the conversations brief or long? Does he ask to rape our women's rights and send poor farm kids off to die? Does God suggest an oil hike when the president talks to God? Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on itunes i know every podcast says it and it's because it really does help and so every podcast wants that help so please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically they hopefully want to tune in and listen and thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron (laughs) 